Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we're both independent filmmakers who enjoy discussing movies and associated media. And for today's podcast, we're joined by two guests. We have a recurring guest filmmaker, Clive Ashenden. Hi, Clive. Hello, good to be here. And for the first time on this podcast, we've got uh, one of my friends, um, film fan and comic book aficionado, <laughs> Paul Dunn. So welcome, Paul. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. I said we get you on at some point. That's lovely. And rather fitting for once, we're actually out of the office and we are very pleased to be recording this today at Orbital Comics, which... Uh, They've been very kind, Paul's arranged for us to actually get out of the, uh, off of Skype and into the field for once, it, so it's, a, uh, it's more intimate this way. Keith, do you mean Eisner Award winning Orbital Comics? Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm blushing with excitement right now, all this promotion, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's great to have you guys, and uh, I'm... You don't get together that often, right? I mean, not for podcasting. You, you're not often doing the pod together, right? No, occasionally no. we've we've got out of the office and okay. done it, but normally it's over the I'm, the Skype, the interweb. Like I can know. honestly say, all but always very happy to help facilitate you guys being around the same table recording. That's there you go. We're, we're pleased with that. No, thank you. Thanks for coming in. There you go. Well, it's customary when we have a new guest is we usually ask, could you just for the benefit of our listeners. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and um, what you're into. Uh, so, yeah, much like yourselves, I love movies. I love comics. Uh, I've been reading comics since I was like about, I don't know, eight or ten or something like that, and seriously into them since about the age of 11, 12. Um, and now I work for, for All But All, and we do the podcast and stuff here. Uh, and, yeah, I'm just a big movie geek like you guys really yeah absolutely films. absolutely well that's how that's how we uh we first got talking i believe was in fop yes when i worked for fop yeah uh, yes and you came in uh were you looking for your own films <laughs> i wasn't looking for my own films <laughs> no, no. i'm just fine no uh, and we just even fop don't <laughs> don't stop them <laughs> Um, yeah, tell me that. <laughs> no, how long have we known each other now? About probably five years, six years. No, probably longer. more than that. Yeah, probably God. about ten years. But scary, isn't it? Flies by. It does fly by. And uh, well, on the subject of time flying by, um, we we put together this kind of fairly last minute podcast um, because in the past week, uh, sadly, we have lost two of our. Uh, I guess, um, from different spectrums of the uh, literacy field. Um, we we lost the great Stan Lee, Stan the Man Lee. And in the same week, we also lost the novelist and screenwriter William Goldman. So we thought it's only fitting to do an episode. We talk a lot about movies and media that relate to these characters. So... Um, we thought we'd uh, we'd put together a podcast and have a little discussion here. Can I ask, have you ever done one on writers before? On your, we've done, to quite a few of your We've, pods, we've done one on script writing where we yeah. had a, a script writer in um, by the name of Ben Woodywiss who okay. we talked about the mechanics of script writing. 
I wasn't actually on that one, I so I, I enjoyed <laughs> listening to that one as a fan. But I mean, quite often we do tend to talk about not just the filmmakers and the films, but we talk about the, you know, the source material. I mean, quite often the reason I say a, a, movies and associated media is quite often we talk about, you know, books, comics radio dramas, theater, video games, you know, all those, all those sort of other tangents, um, that, that, that come off with this, but, uh, um, and then every once in a while we have these tribute episodes and I think, uh, you know, this is, this is the thing, I guess, with being Gen Xers, like we all are, is a lot of our childhood heroes are now getting to that age where, you know, sadly they're, they're, we're starting to lose them. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... I was completely shocked to hear about Goldman, um, especially coming so soon after Stanley died. It, it, like, I was just really, just genuinely, genuinely shocked. I don't know which one I'm more, not that you should be more upset about one or the other, really, but I don't know which one I'm more upset about. It's uh, two big figures in, in the sort of entertainment industry uh, who've loomed large, certainly in my own personal history. So, yeah, well, it's I mean, bizarre yeah. to see them. Well, that, that's a really good starting off point, actually, because the way, <laughs> if there is any structure to our conversations, as we were joking about earlier, I mean, the way myself and Simon, when we have guests on, we usually sort of structure it is we make the podcast very much about our personal experiences and what inspired us and things of that nature. Um, and we always sort of ask our guests to go first. So, so maybe you and Clive can sort of start by... A little bit about um you, you know your journey and what what those characters meant to you uh in, in your life as a filmmaker clive i'll start with you then okay um it's interesting you say those characters like like they <laughs> like they were somehow larger than life and i think maybe if we, if we take stan lee first because when you say that character the character of stan lee uh, it's it's like almost has a life of his own, independent of the man, you know, who who revolutionised comics and then went on and did all these other amazing things. Because it's partly the ubiquity of of him, you know, of his cameos, of of him being an ambassador for for comics as well as for Marvel, and then going through. I mean, my I guess my first exposure to Stan Lee. Uh, would have been through the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon. I'm so pleased you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, which sort of uh, ran early eighties, eighty one to eighty three, and 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 he he was the narrator. So it was kind of that was my sort of first taste of the sort of uh, like Stan the editor voice, which you know. Then, as I got into comics and started reading, uh, going back and reading a lot of the, the sort of classic sort of Silver Age stuff and, and sort of bits and pieces, then you start to sort of get a sense of like you know that whole Stan soapbox sort of thing and, and his his voice, his sort of catchphrases, Excelsior, Nuff said, all this sort of like bits and pieces that he would sort of you know and and, he, and, and as I remember it, he would kind of he would sign off. Like everything with Excelsior in in the you know in Spider Man as Amazing Friends That's and right. and yeah. I mean that was one where uh, me my brother and my sister we we would tape that on Betamax 
Um, oh, wow. and, 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 you had Beta Max? Yeah, because <laughs> uh, apparently it was going to be the future. Uh, and as we know, that proved Still to be a, 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 <laughs> true. So, so uh, it was like we had. Uh, it was it, it was like uh, this. It, it, I mean, I'm going to sound so old uh, talking like this, but uh, but when I, when I was growing up, it was such a sort of novelty the idea that you could you could uh, record things off the television and watch them again. They weren't just yep. gone. So we would religiously record Spider Man as Amazing Friends as well as other sort of Saturday morning shows, uh, and then you know as well as things like Star Wars and so on. Uh, and just rewatch them to death. You know, yep. I must have seen the episode with with the arachnoid, like about like about sort of fifty fifty or more times, <laughs> just because because that was my particular favourite. Um, so that was kind of how I first was was aware of Stanley as a sort of like as a person. Um, and then yeah, and then you know, and as I sort of got into comics uh, through. Initially through sort of UK reprints in annuals and stuff, and then uh, like as I got older, then really kind of just becoming absolutely obsessed with the X Men and things like that, and then just just sort of you go back, don't you? And you and you you look for the source, you look for those kind of touchstone comics. So that that was how I first became aware of him. Yeah, excellent. What well, what about you, Paul? I think probably it was in reading old copies of American comics that not a family member, but probably like one of my sisters. I, I grew up with a lot of sisters and they all had boyfriends and things. And I, I, I think one of them was massively into comics, especially 2000 AD. Um, and then also I, I think there were probably a few American comics lying around the house. So I, I got to pick those up and have a look when I was very young. And then as you get older and strangely enough, I wasn't actually a Marvel reader. Really, right? Um, but I certainly knew Stan Lee was. It was just one of those weird things that that he's he's always kind of been there, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because he is such a cultural icon. Or was was such a cultural icon that um, he was inescapable, really, and and that isn't a bad thing. You know, so much like uh, Clive here, I read the Stan's soapbox uh, things in the Marvel comics as I got old enough to kind of pick up. You know, make those choices myself over which ones I was buying, um, but I think possibly maybe through television or interviews and things like that, you you would you would just always kind of be aware of him, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and certainly he had such a distinctive voice that you would always kind of hear in your head, and, and you know you could always tell. You know, when when Stan was back, because he had that very distinctive kind of interesting, different kind of New York accent, and, and I, then I think later on, I started to read more Spidey, and of course that was Stan's big creation or big co-creation, I should say, um, and, and certainly you get you got a distinctive sort of Stanley voice coming through there. And probably through the amazing Spider-Man and the Amazing Super Friends as well, because that that was a kind of constant in my life. That was always on Saturday mornings and things, as I recall. Um, I I have to be. I'm probably possibly the oldest person here. I think maybe. Now let's not go into age. <laughs> so, we're, we're we're all around so the me, same age. The memories are dying every day. <laughs> 
we're, we're, um, we're all of that. We're all of the Star Wars generation, yes, definitely. As, as I like to call the it. The first. Yes, yes, indeed. But uh, but but you were. I mean, I seem to remember from some of the conversations mm. we've had over the years, you, you are more of a DC guy normally. Is yeah, that right? That is the thing. Yeah. Um, not because I didn't like Marvel. I, I, I can't tell why I, I picked one over the other. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, but later, as I've, I've gotten older, I've read more Marvel and tried to, to read more of that stuff. Um, but, Clive, I was interested because you said you, you read a lot of the Silver Age stuff. See, now that stuff I now find quite difficult to read, not because it's bad, but just because it's so far removed from what I grew up with, which was the 80s kind of grim and gritty stuff, that I, I find it really kind of... Oh, but it's always fascinating to see where the ideas start. It is, that. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've read lots, but I think it was more just because I love Spider-Man. So right. uh, particularly, I went back and looked at the early Spideys. Um, but it's 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 a very it's like a different style of comics, isn't it? Mm, and very much so because it, it's so much more wordy. But on the other hand, it's like you get much more bang for your buck in terms of story because mm. it's so it's so dense with with stuff. Whereas now it's much more art-led and there's much much sort of thinner, you know, it's like you have to read four issues to get like what you would get in a single issue in terms of like a sort of a story development. There's a lot more decompression now in comics um, and in some writers and artists you'll see it more uh, and in some less. It's, in fact, it is quite strange now to read comics and, and we often lament the kind of death of, of the one and done comic. In, in, in the shop because it's just like oh it's great when you could just pick up an issue you could dive in it didn't matter who you were or where what background you were coming from with that comic you could just dive in and read that comic and you'd get everything you needed from that one comic and it'd be a new story next month or next week or in the next two weeks and uh, but that those days are are not sort of fully behind us but they're, they're getting that way yeah it's like you know, TV yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that that is it. That Absolutely. is it. Yeah, the serialized, so it's, it, and it is done entirely so they so you can be sold big thick books with six or eight or twelve issues in. Um, so it is a, a a money choice. I don't. I'm not angry about it because I just understand that's the way it's gone. But sometimes it is nice just to read a, a solid, concise story in one issue. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. What What about you, Simon? What was your sort of uh backstory with Stan Lee stuff well I was also a DC guy um, I grew up reading uh, Batman mm. a lot of Batman comics and um, but I knew Marvel through TV because I used to watch you know Spider-Man and uh, the the one in the 80s as well I mean I remember the the 70s one where you actually had the Spider-Man theme tune right <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and um and, 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 go, <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, I also grew up watching uh, The Incredible Hulk on TV. Mm. So I knew Marvel and, um, you know, Captain America. I remember seeing the, the film in the early 90s, that really awful one. And um, But um, again, I've, I can't pinpoint what point I... I um, I sort of rec recognised Stan Lee as a person and as a voice. It probably was the cartoons, was, you know, 
because I pictured the voice. You could picture the voice before you could picture the man. And um, so I sort of, you know, jump a whole load of years later. And I remember when I first got into filmmaking, um, I saw Clark's at Prince Charles. And then that same weekend, they showed more rats. Mm. Oh, yes. Of course, he has the cameo, doesn't he? More than a cameo. He's a character in the film. I mean, he's, you know, (laughs) there is that whole scene where. Oh, my God. It's your, you're a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, no, it was just great. I mean, I can't. It's that weird thing where um, he's somebody who's always been there, and he's always been associated with comics and Marvel. And I can't, you know, for life of me remember when was the first time I actually, you know, recognised that was Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I, you know, I love all the sort of his cameos and. You know all the Marvel films, and you know dating back to his appearances in like the uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man films and and stuff like that. I think that was, I know he'd done cameos before that. But I think that was when it was cemented that if you were doing a Marvel film, you had to have a Stan Lee um, mm-hmm. cameo. Yeah, yeah, he did yeah. X-Men, didn't he? And then he did Spider-Man off the back of that. Well, his, his like... first one was actually the yeah. TV movie The Trial of the Incredible oh, Hulk in God. 1988 <laughs> or whatever. That was his first. He was part of the jury. jury. Form, yes, exactly. <laughs> in, in the sort of... Uh, He's my favourite character. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the best thing in that film, to be fair. Say, no, I did, I did love the cameo in Ang Lee's Hulk, where it was him and Luther Ringo. Security guards. Security guards, mm, yeah. yeah. And didn't he come back to play security guard in The Incredible Hulk? Wasn't he the? He was a guy who drank some no, drink yeah, that the, the, for, that drank, the yeah. formula had fallen into the drink yeah. or something, and then he was on the news that he'd been taken ill because of oh, drinking right. the soda pop. Or oh, so. right, the, yeah. the factory that um, oh yeah 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 uh, Bruce yeah. Banner was working. working at. I think yeah. I think there's been I think it's like thirty five cameos in the over the years something like that i think it is but uh yeah i, crazy. I actually think they were contractual i i believe I'm oh not really sure. okay i think they were it was actually if you're if you are making a marvel as you say making a marvel movie yeah stan's got to be in there somewhere well, somehow I, I think it was as you yeah. rightly said simon when, when those sam raimi spider-man films came that was when you know people sort of started to notice it during the film and and it's got it's got to that point now where oh i mean sadly we're not going to get any more obviously but i don't know about you but in recent years i kind of used to get annoyed in the cinema with the person that had to make the big thing of pointing out the the stanley cameo and we're like yes we bloody know it's him is that the same person who points out the alfred hitchcock cameo there you go there you go is that you you say we won't get you say we won't get any more but wow yeah, they, yes, they've got a, they've got at least one in the bank, haven't they? I think. I, I, mean, yeah. I, th- I think James Gunn directed a few, didn't he? Have I, I got I that think, right? I, I've heard I've heard various things. The thing I've heard most recently is that there there are about three or four in the bank done. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the other thing I'd heard was that in fact they'd shot uh, quite a lot of them, and the idea is that somehow they would swing the movie. Around because if you look at his cameos, 
Oh, they, they completely pull you out of, of the plot half yeah, the time. Yeah, they're of a lot of the main <laughs> yes. yeah, cast. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, and, yeah. you know I don't, again, it's going to sound like an old man here, but it's amazing what they can do with effects these days. No, it is. Yeah. And, and there's no way they couldn't sort of just cut him out of this and put him in that. But, yeah, I understand they filmed quite a few. Yeah. Is my, as, as Clive, Clive said. They've, they've it's, it's funny you were saying that because I went back and watched The Crow recently and... Um, you can clearly see where they yeah. um, digitally put the face over the body double for Brandon, oh, the Brandon mm. Lee stuff. Yeah. Blu-ray, you know, it shows that it's up a lot It's very unforgiving, isn't it? Yeah, at the cinema, I remember, I couldn't spot it. I, I thought it was, you know that moment near the end where he's surrounded by the kids? I thought, oh, that's it. And mm. then the rest of the film, that's a body double. Mm. But then I didn't realise how films were made at that time. They weren't shot in order, so... Mm. Yeah. Thankfully, most of his role had been had been filmed. So yeah, I think just... I think there was very little un, yeah. undone, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, but I, when I watched The Crow, I, I saw it at the cinema, but then I also saw it on um, like a, a Region One DVD. So for, and back then, because of the difference between PAL and NTSC, mm-hmm. Region One DVDs were, were just a bit murkier yes. and a bit more forgiving on yeah. effect sequences. So the joins are a lot better in Region yeah. One DVD than they are on the, uh, the sort of UK Blu-ray now. It's, it's funny how high def doesn't help everything. No, does it? it doesn't. No. It really doesn't. It's doesn't. Uh, no. it's interesting, but right. to, the, to the point where you can actually see the stunt double. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm sort of understand Lee thing. Similar to you guys, I guess. Um, I mean, I've always. I always say this on the podcast, but I always come at. My entry into comics was from movies first. It was always yeah. movies and TV first. And then I'd go and seek out the um, the source material, as it were. And, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Incredible Hulk television series. And I, I seem to remember that when I was very young, some sort of magazine like Possibly Looking or something like that had, a, uh, had some sort of behind-the-scenes uh interviews or something and i think that's when i first saw a picture of stan lee was was in that and then obviously as you said clive he was of course the voice of spider-man and the amazing friends intro um so kind of always always knew him from from that side of things but it it definitely i mean you know i i watched the i mean i know he didn't even like it but the spider-man tv series with with nicholas hammond um which he which he classed as too juvenile i seem to remember was his criticism on that show what did he think of the japanese (laughs) spider-man but uh but yeah it was it was always tv and movies and then um yeah you know i've since gone back and you, you know read certain important graphic novels and and stuff but I'm, i think my my entrance into actual comic books uh apart from like star wars weekly or whatever when yeah. i was really young but um was sort of in the late 80s early 90s when you had the sort of the, the, that sort of era of the graphic novel and it was the, like the frank miller stuff like the, the the dark knight returns and and obviously the, the the death of superman and the rebirth of Superman and all that sort of stuff was, but again, those were those were largely the DC titles that I'm that I'm quoting there. But yeah. um, I mean, you had um, there was the X Men one as well at the time. Um, was it X Men Apocalypse? 
The, the oh. one where Xavier and Magneto were sort of joined together to create this one big... Oh, I can't... Yeah. So this is the trouble. There, there, there's so many crossover events yeah. around that. Time. Least, yeah, around the nineties, it was kind of like, you know, we have this one storyline that's over multiple comics. You know, I'm not quite sure which one started it off. If it was Death of Superman, but you had that. You had Nightfall, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, Rise, Rise of the Supermen, and then Return of Superman. <laughs> yes, yeah. 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 With some of those, they actually did do. Um... Uh, audio drama adaptations as well of, of those which I was uh, a big fan of um, uh, Dirt Mags kind of directed those and uh, you know got a cast audio version oh, wow, and stuff so yeah there was, there was all sorts of stuff those. yeah no I, 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 I do love a good audio drama so which which I often mention <laughs> Um, well, this is going to be isn't it this is, we? yeah there you go we've got, we got one right here but, but also um, uh yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that always sort of struck me with the whole, I never, this whole sort of Marvel DC thing, I never really ever was in either of those camps particularly, because the way I looked at it, both of them had really great characters and really shit characters, you know, both both sides. And also they had a lot that they used to borrow from one another as well. So there was a lot of sort of analogues between some of their characters yeah. and I yeah. and I never did know which came first. I mean, of course, technically the um the the, the DC stuff goes back to the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, whereas the, the 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 main bulks, especially where Stan Lee was involved of the of the creations of the Marvel stuff was more in the sixties. Was it early sixties, sixties and stuff? Yeah, that... sort of late fifties, early sixties, and and the bulk of it. So when you're you're looking at things like the X Men and Fantastic Four were around, I'm probably incorrect, Clive. Perhaps you you, you can give us a correct date, but around sixty two, sixty three, and then Spider Man just after that, around sixty four, sixty five. I think that's about right. I mean, there's like this incredible like burst of creativity it's like literally mm. every single every month they're like they're bringing out these like iconic characters and it's just it's just you know obviously he co-created uh, them with uh, you know so many of them with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko mm. but it's just you know you just li- it just listing them off you know like the Fantastic Four Hulk Thor Iron Man the X-Men Daredevil Doctor Strange Spider-Man you know, and then, and that's not even counting like things where he's like gone back and he's taken like golden age characters like Captain America and uh, you know Submariner and sort of brought them brought them into like the sort of modern times. Mm. I mean, and it, and it's just that I think even if you are like you know a hardcore DC person and and not really into the Marvel stuff, you've got to be grateful to Stan Lee for basically making dc better because mm. he just he, yes. he he changed comics i mean correct i mean correct me if i'm wrong paul but what what didn't dc get into a whole thing where they were just essentially reprinting comics for a, for a bit well yeah i mean that's how that in fact is how dc got started and how superman certainly got started there's a lot of uh criminality at the birth of of dc comics the reason why why they were reprinting comics was um, during Prohibition, they were smuggling booze in paper shipments, and 
the um, organization, let's call it, <laughs> let's call it that, that was bringing that stuff in, saw an opportunity to make even more money out of the paper, mm-hmm. which was essentially just going to get thrown away. And they went, oh, well, if we reprint, you know, the uh, <laughs> newspaper strips on this and repackage them, uh, as I understand, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading a book right now on that. And uh, wow. yeah, as I understand, there's, there's a lot of criminality at the heart of it. But yeah, DC what did start with reprints. Um, there were original characters like Batman came after and was a character designed for that sort of American comic format at the time. Mm-hmm. But the early Supermans are reprints, resized, recut um, newspaper strips. And in, and in fact, I, I've got a feeling that Siegel and Schuster actually cut them themselves to oh, wow. to fit them to fit the shape of American comics. So they re, recut the newspaper strips they've done. Right. Um, but yes, they were ex- effective. Sorry, I went off on a tangent no, there, that's, but they were effective. That's really interesting. I mean... But you had that thing, didn't you, where it's like by the late fifties, it's sort of a bit, it's kind of mm. been codified. Whether whether it's DC or whether it's their competitors, where you've got like these incredibly idealized heroes who are, yeah. you know, always do the right thing. They're always noble. They're, you know, they're iconic, uh, and you know, and they and they often they've got a really great rogues gallery. But what you know. What's what Stan Lee and what the Marvel creators bring to it is that sense of of like these are fallible uh, humans with with like real like everyday problems. Mm. So he brings you bring that to it, and then you get that sense of whereas the DC characters, although they could come together, you know, whether it's in like Justice Society or Justice League, that that's like it wasn't like they were all living in the same place. Mm. Where you know they they each they they kind of had their own city, didn't they? Whether it's mm. you know Gotham, Metropolis, or whatever. But it, with Marvel, because it was because so many because so much of it was just in New York City. It you know it became that whole thing of it's almost like he invents the cinematic universe. He invents the idea of this sort of like you know even if it, you know you could be reading let's say a Daredevil comic and then like Spidey will just turn up for like a panel there mm. and it's. And it's like a, a, this sense of like, you know, they could almost like just sort of just be very close to each other. And there's, there's a sense of like there's always another story going on that you can just like, and obviously a lot of it's like kind of like cross-promotional, very clever like salesmanship of kind mm-hmm. of like, uh, you know, C-ish, uh, that had a, mm-hmm. a, you know, a three, three, six for, uh, for, for news of this exciting adventures, uh, you know, um, and you know, of course, you're like, oh wow, what's, what's going on there, you know, uh, but and some, but you know, it was it just sort of made the world feel bigger, mm. and 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 of course now and now we have that in 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 the world of cinema, you know, which you know people are like, oh, that's never going to happen, you know, the idea that you bring all these heroes together and have all these separate films is just hubris. The idea that you know you can just yeah. plan this far ahead and you know. Well, that's so true, actually. Comics, you know, when you think about it, they have been responsible for so many things that, that in movies and in sort of general pop culture are accepted nowadays. Like, I, I, I mean, every studio now wants a cinematic universe, don't they? Every, every franchise so is trying to have a 
cinematic yeah, universe. In my opinion. Also, the whole the whole notion of reboots, which obviously in the last twenty years has happened loads in movies, but you, you know the that was a sort of phrase that was uh, used a lot in the in the comic books back in the day, wasn't it? And reimagining and rebooting and well, all of that stuff. Um, it's quite, yeah, I think it's quite interesting, like you said, the impact he's had. And I love it when we talk about his creative period being sort of um, in, during the 60s, because we're, we're all saying about how old we feel. But when I hear anything of the 60s, which was before my time, I suddenly don't feel as old anymore, which I like. <laughs> um, I, look, I mean, the, the thing with the, the guys in the 60s was, and I remember having this conversation with a buddy of mine, me and, a, and another friend, who were kind of big into comics were kind of trying to explain to him what reading that stuff was like. And, and we were saying to him, look, these guys would not have got work anywhere else. The ideas they were coming out with were bizarre. They were so strange, so unusual. And the interpretations that the artists were doing of those ideas were so strange and so unusual and yeah. so bizarre. They would not have got work in any conventional medium it, it, I, I think it would have only just been comics even sci-fi novels they, I think they would have been laughed out the door and it, when you look at characters like the X-Men like if you take Professor X for example okay so and you know sorry for using terms that might be considered but he, he was a cripple he was bald he had the power of mind control effectively that's a villain right there but the idea that, that Stan and, and Jack are coming up with as well, well, what if he's the hero? What if he's the what if he's the leader of the team? Because in any other book, in any other medium, that's a villain. Guy in the wheelchair, bald, rolling around, controlling people's minds. That's sort of uh, Doctor Mabuse ter territory, you know. He's he's you know he's the, the bad villain. guy. Yeah. yeah. Now it's the Bond villain. <laughs> you know, you you jump forward twenty years from that, and he, he's Blofeld, but he's not. He's the hero, or yeah. he's at very least he's the leader of the team. Um, those concepts were pretty, pretty far-reaching. Frank Miller said it himself about um, Daredevil. Like in in any other medium, he'd be the villain. He's blind, you know. He's full of anger. That's the villain right there. Um, but he's not. He's the hero, and I, and I think mm -hmm. that was their thing. And also, the one thing that you, you kind of really, I think, have to credit Stan Lee for um, is. The hero next door, as Clive was talking about, they were all in New York. Mm -hmm. They could have been right next door to you, mm -hmm. and you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know the guy next door was a mutant. You wouldn't know the guy next door actually put on a Spider-Man costume and went out and beat up bad guys. And yeah, you just wouldn't know. And I, and I think that was the key strength. And today, you see that coming forward, not just in the overreaching kind of marvel universe but in the fact there's there's something going on in, in superheroes which has been happening for decades now which i i call like the domestication of superheroes so for me the most prevalent element of that is they don't call each other iron man or cap or uh black widow mm -hmm. it's steve it's tony it's uh natasha it's bruce you know it's it's that sort of stuff they don't they they're not interested in those kind of identities almost really. Yeah. They're, they're interested in people. Mm -hmm. And and that I think was Stanley's key strength. He was always interested in people. 
people and he was interested in real people hmm. um and, yeah. and that for me was was one of the things that I, I always credit him for despite the things that have been kind of said about him over the years is that he, hmm. he was always interested in people he's a people person yeah yeah i, yeah, I mean I remember watching the end of iron man when he mm. came out and said i am iron man which you think in in films was like so unusual because usually mm. that's the secret identity yeah yeah, yeah i mean yeah that, that's very true actually the mcu you know in fact a lot of them don't worry so much about the secret identity. i mean i guess of all of them it is spider-man isn't it that does have the sort of yeah. secret identity yeah but that's because he doesn't but, want uh, mm. his friends getting hurt and well, his aunt yeah his aunt and whatever yeah um god who'd want to hurt his aunt Ooh. no um but uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> which one uh, the marissa tomei come on um but uh in, in fact in fact in fact both martha ken and and um, oh my god and aunt may are like uh, what podcast have i, have I ended into? I'm just kidding. but but that that was the other sort of main difference if you like between the sort of DC and Marvel, which is interesting, is with the DC, they're always in their sort of fictional cities. So, you know, Metropolis, Gotham City, Star City, whatever, you know. Whereas, as you said, it was it was nice that most of the heroes are in sort of different areas of, well, largely New York, isn't it? But different, different um, suburbs and whatever of well, New York, so. Interesting enough, DC did start out being set in recognizable cities but they evolved into things like gotham i think gotham the first appears in batman number one right but not detective comics like it then it was new york originally oh, and, it, and they, they kind okay. of evolved into that so it, it might have been interesting to see what marvel would have done with that given that same sort of evolutionary period of oh you know we'll, we'll change it to this i don't know what the thinking was with that yeah. decision it doesn't bother me i, I love uh, in fact, I think one of the strengths of Batman is the is Gotham, mm-hmm. like the, the the. Well, it's a character. The, yeah, the world yeah, that you can build yeah. there and things. Yeah, that you can so have. you can have it be any given mm. style. I mean, think of the Tim Burton, um, God Gotham. In mm. both films, they were very different. And then, uh, of course, the Christopher Nolan Batman's, where it was a bit more urban mm. and less sort of uh, fantastical. Yeah, yeah, no, def- definitely. I mean, it's. Uh, and and again, I suppose the other, you know, there are lots of similarities, but the other difference, I suppose, as you touched on, Clive, was the fact that, like, you know, Superman's an alien, Batman's a billionaire, um, you know, Wonder Woman's a Amazonian warrior, you know, all this sort of thing, whereas... The, the, the guy, the, a broke well, it, teenager. It, it, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Peter Parker is a... Is 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 just a normal teenager that happens to get bitten by well, this radioactive. Yeah, spider, but but you know, but, you know to be fair, you do still have Iron Man who's a billionaire. Oh, that's true. And yeah. you do yeah. still have Thor who's a god. Yeah, so yeah, the surfer who's an alien. Yeah, so, there you uh, go. But but it, it's it's like but the thing is, even though they are, you know, they might be, they might not be in your situation. They still have girl trouble. They still have you know. Uh, what are like, you saying, Clive? They still have problems, like with their with their, like their secret identities, kind of day job, and trying to fit that in, and you know how they're balancing their sort of work life, yes. um, and you know, 
Uh, I mean, I one of the I remember one of the first Marvel, uh, one of the first Spider-Man comics I ever read. It re- it sort of stuck with me because Spider-Man throughout the story, he's he, he's he's trying to fight like various villains who are teaming up. Um, I think it was like the lizard and Stegron, the dinosaur mm. man, um, and it was, and and he's he's battling. It's the middle of winter. He's battling this this stinking cold. So so he's he's sick and he's still having to sort of get out of bed and go and do his job. And I really related to that. And maybe it was although there might have been part of me as a kid was like just picturing like oh, is he just sneezing inside of his mask that's really gross it's just like anyway. um, sorry that just reminds me of the, the, the Kenny Everett sketch oh yeah oh what the, the bathroom yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that no zipper on that yeah, on yeah go, go, go to YouTube and, and, and search that out Kenny Everett Spider-Man sketch yeah. well, yeah. funny enough on a, on a slightly Different level. Um, one of my favourite, I think it was an issue of Spider Man, um, and it's quite an early one. Is one where, well, not early, I think it's from the eighties, early in my my comic book reading. Um, is one where his costume is damaged so badly, he has to hide out with the Fantastic Four for a little while, and they give him one of their um, jumpsuits. All right. Um, but of course, he's got no mask. So he literally has to web his way back across New York to his apartment wearing a paper bag with two eye holes <laughs> it, um, barefoot. And I think Ben Grimm or Johnny Storm have, have solitaped to kick me side to his back. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's one of the best... Um, like moments in comics you'll you'll ever read. I oh, wish I could still remember what comic that is. I'm sure someone listening to this will know. But um, yeah, I, I'm really hoping to get that again because that was one of my favourite ever moments in comics and one of my earliest memories of comics. In fact, wow, that's it. I tell you, one of my earliest memories. I seem to remember, and I was given a choice at, at the time. Mm-hmm. I, my mum would only buy me one or the other. Um, but uh, there was. I remember going into. Um, uh, uh, like a bookstore when I was a kid and there was um, a book about the uh, like an official souvenir magazine about Star Trek the motion picture but there was also a Spider-Man meets Superman yes, uh, like famous. trade paperback type thing and I could only have one or the other and at the time I did choose the Star Trek um, the motion picture uh, How bored must you have been now? <laughs> <laughs> but I was always intrigued because I was like, oh, you know, obviously I did, at the time I didn't understand what the difference between DC and Marvel yeah. was, but I was just, it, it, it just seemed bizarre that Superman and Spider-Man, obviously I knew Superman from the big screen and, and Spider-Man from the TV show, yeah, um, that they were together in an adventure, but yeah. uh, did, have I have I dreamt that up or did no, that no, no. exist? It, it's a real yeah. thing. It was um, what they called the treasury editions. Um, so you'll sometimes see them on display in the shop. They're these big format, um, almost kind of uh, broadsheet newspaper size. They're huge, right? Uh, and Marvel did a load of them in the early to mid seventies, I think, and eighties. And occasionally they still do do them now, um, and they quite often were special crossovers. And the, yeah. the Superman Spider Man one is extremely famous. Uh, yeah. And in fact, it was one of the early kind of 
variant covers almost because I can't remember what it was. There was a that was right. They did an edition that was sent out just for educational purposes to schools, I think. Oh, right. And the cover is slightly different, and I think it's kind of classed now as one of the first variants. And in fact, we had that in the shop uh, earlier this year. Wow, we had that okay. one in the shop. Um, yeah. I was just always, I remember leaving kind of, you, you know, you, obviously kids now will probably get both anyway, yeah. but at the time I was very much taught, you know, you can have one or the other, you yeah. know, you can't yeah. have both. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the time I guess I was, really into Star Trek at that moment. I, I so, to ask you, know, was it like, were you like, hang on, I've been reading this for 20 pages, they're still on the shuttle going to the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, another flyby. Yeah, yeah. Still going through the Yeah, it was like a sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, official souvenir magazine <laughs> but or something. But I, I'm, I'm right in saying <laughs> that though, didn't um, Stan Lee do a series of DC comics where he reimagined the, their characters? Yes, that was fairly oh, right. recently. That yeah. was in within okay. the last, I'm going to say 15 years, maybe so, 20 years. Yeah, just imagine. Just imagine. Uh, and I think he recreated Batman, The Flash, Wonder Woman, the, the major ones, basically. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I never read them to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, no, I didn't read them either, but I remember them yeah. coming out. There's so much material out there, though. It's mm. crazy, isn't it? It's like, uh, <laughs> there's, there's just loads to watch. Well, well quite read, often so. now, those the treasury things and, and the, the sort of just imagines are things that don't get reprinted because the, com- I, I suspect because the competition between those companies is now so fierce <laughs> that yeah. they don't want to there's, there's loads of things like from what they call the Amalgam Age of comics, which was when they did a lot of DC um, Marvel crossovers. Those aren't currently in print in book form. And it's a shame because there's some interesting stuff in there yeah. and some interesting pairings. I mean, I, I've got some of it at home and, and we, we've certainly got some right now in the shop, but um, they, they are currently out of print. I would love it if they reprinted those. Yeah. And put those out in book form for people to enjoy again, because you know, for for a lot of people, going around and tracking down a twenty pound back issue is not conducive to getting young people into comics. Right. And, yeah. Uh, it, it makes it more difficult for them. But yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of great weird crossovers that, as you dig into the history, you, you'd probably be surprised hmm. that that ever took place. But no, you didn't imagine the Spider Man. Actually, you, you've you've. Um... You prompted a question in my mind now, and I don't know whether you're able to answer this or not. But obviously, working in a place like Orbital mm. Comics, plug plug, okay, <laughs> um, is it? I mean, you know, you sort, I sort of take it for granted. But is it mainly sort of Generation X that tend to still buy comics, or do millennials and whatever yeah. buy comics regularly? Uh, okay, so it's. A- if you're talking about back issues, that tends to be either people are looking for something very specific, uh, and they tend to be in their thirties, forties, mm-hmm. our sort of age, you know. Uh, for new comics, it's a wide mix. It's right. a very wide mix. The older guys tend to buy more than the younger guys because they've been collecting for so long; they don't want to give up on that, you know. Mm. Um, but it's a very wide mix now. It used to be that you couldn't get um, women, and especially young women, to buy comics, and kids, weirdly mm-hmm. enough. 
kids would not buy comics uh, because it was all you know guys who were kids in the 70s yeah, and yeah. 80s yeah. like us yeah. and they'd grown up and carried on with that habit but you couldn't get new kids now there are literally comics for everybody right which is good it's and they're not so and, and, and we're talking physical hard yeah copies rather than digital loads of people buy digital loads of people buy digital that's fine uh sometimes sometimes that's the only way you can get certain things mm-hmm. and i suspect that the releasing certain collections digital only is a testing ground for oh well we'll print we'll we'll get some of these printed up and then we'll put it out as a book um but it's it is such a wide range now, and and yeah, people still buying physical comics. Thank God, because it means I've still got a job. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, people are still buying physicals. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And and also one one other little thing I wanted to touch on with the sort of Stan Lee side of mm. things was this sort of um, slightly controversial, but you know about the fact that until the last sort of fifteen twenty years or whatever he was sort of credited as the creator of a lot of these uh, characters and stories. Um, and obviously, you know, in, in, in the later years, the, 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 the artist has been um, credited also, whether if it's Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or whoever. But I mean, that... I mean, it was only in recent years that Bill Finger has been credited along with Bob Kane as creating Batman. So, I mean, was is that more of a sort of, rather than somebody sort of egotistically just trying to take credit, is it more of that's how the industry was, that they used to credit the the writer, you know, over and above the, the artist, even though, obviously, as we both know, it takes both to sort of bring the, 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 the character to life on the page. I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Or have I opened up a can of worms now? (laughs) I've got a lot to say on this. I don't know if anyone else wants to go first. Um, I just remember what I saw in that 2000 AD documentary about um, how a lot of the writers there were sort of credited with the creations of these work, but the artists kind of, they weren't. They didn't. It was that weird thing where they were saying about actual bits of art were being used, like, like doorstops and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was it wasn't treated very well, but the written word was, um, you know, treated much better. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of like it's like in the film industry, you get more money for an idea than you do for a finished product. Mm. But mm. Um, um, it's that weird thing, isn't it? Because um, it's like selling, isn't it? And Stan Lee is somebody that people know. Mm. if they don't read a comic and so they you know using that to sell the comics and stuff and i guess i don't know maybe it was just they felt easier to to have one person as the creator than having lots of other people yeah i mean it always just it always comes down to copyright as well I yeah mean, copyright law is is an absolute mess yeah I mean, I know in recent years, you know, he's obviously been in the zeitgeist and he's been very much the sort of figurehead and whatever. But whenever I've seen him interviewed, he's always been very um, quick to actually credit the the other artists as well, rather than just saying that he created Spider-Man or he created 
Iron Man or whatever. You know, he would always um, credit the other artists. Have you have you got thoughts on that, Clive? I mean, I, I don't really know what the answer is. I'm just uh, putting it out there. Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like there was a period of time where it seemed like Stanley really got bashed and really got kind of like. I mean, there was a bit of a there was. It, it, not just him, but it was very much part of that sort of backlash. And now I feel like, especially after his passing, thankfully I think a lot of that sort of stuff has gone away, you know. And it and you can and and we can now recognise, you know, that obviously the artists they that you know that he co-created with them, and they should be credited. But he didn't do nothing, you know. It's not like he just stole all their work. I think a lot of it is down to this idea of, of the, what they called the Marvel method, um, which was, mm. and it's because he was so prolific. At one point, you know, he's writing like sort of, was it like sixteen monthlies or something at the same time, and it's and you and you know he's beyond prolific. But in order to get all that done and and to, <laughs> it, it, he he would essentially it, it, they they sort of had this sort of method where basically brainstorm the story with the artist, then he'd write out the whole synopsis rather than writing out a script with like all the dialogue and stuff. And then he would then he would basically say, allocate the number of pages to the artist to say, you fill in the bits kind of stuff. And so there there's a bit of sort of sniffiness I feel from some areas of of people where they sort of kind of like well, he's not really writing it then, is he? You know, it's kind of... But the amount, sheer amount of stuff that he was doing, I mean, I don't see how, he, how else he could have done it, you yeah. know. And it, and so I think because it went from him sort of writing every word to him, then just sort of like beating out the stories, that it's sort of... That perhaps that, that sort of... There was a certain kind of, you know, sort of feeling that as a creator that he... You know that he was much more showman and salesman than he was creator, but mm-hmm. I think that's hard. I think it's very hard on Stan, and and I think, thankfully, I think people have sort of coming back round to sort of realizing just how much he did contribute. Mm. You know, yeah, just how much we wouldn't have, you know, the likes of Spider Man, Fantastic Four without Stan. Obviously, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't have it without without uh, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko either. But, you know, I don't think you can just sort of say that he that he didn't contribute because he did. Mm. Definitely. Paul, you said you've got yeah. feelings on this. Okay, so I, I can't really come down on one side or the other, but what I can say is this. At the time in that industry, uh, you were a writer or artist for hire. You got paid... I think by the page in terms of uh, art and by the issue, I believe, mm-hmm. in terms of writing. Um, the Marvel method, as Clive said, has a lot to do with this kind of view of Stan Lee and the problems with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. I think that what Stan was, was as these guys both said, is, is a great salesman. He understood the importance of giving Marvel Comics a face. Mm-hmm. Um, 
of giving people a name to cling to, which is why you got a lot of that, you know, uh, you know, Jocelyn Jack Kirby, whatever it was, the, the kind of alliteration that he used to throw, <laughs> the marble ball pen idea, um, which did and didn't exist. It really wasn't quite the way it was kind of described to people. Uh, as Cliver says, that the kind of prolific nature of his work would have meant that, yeah, the Marvel method was the only way he could have got that stuff done. It's my understanding that perhaps in a lot of cases, some of that stuff was farmed out to even to other writers to do in the Stanley style. However, that style was quite distinctive. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe he would have had, had a hand in all of those. Um, does that mean the other guys didn't deserve the credit that they kind of sought later on? No, they, they absolutely deserve credit. And had the industry, and I am talking about the entire industry, been different at the time, they should have got that. But the industry wasn't different. I think Stanley always knew where the paycheck was coming from. And that was from, you know, the head honchos at Marvel. He always knew where the paycheck was coming from. He was a salesman first, and that's what he did. Giving these other guys credit doesn't mean you strip credit from Stanley. It means that perhaps there's a, a redressing of the balance and you kind of go, well, actually, the way the Fantastic Four look and the way Spider-Man looks and moves uh, is as much a distinction as the way they speak and sound and the adventures they get into. Mm-hmm. And I, I would agree with that. Um, I don't know what the analogy is for filmmaking, the auteur theory, I think, mm. is probably the closest yeah. one, yeah. Um, which we all know is kind of true, but also kind mm-hmm. of nonsense. It, yeah. It's it's kind of, you know, yeah, six of one, half a dozen the other. It's collaborative. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, in an ideal world, everyone that works on a film would probably get paid uh, a, a, a decent similar wage mm. i mean i don't know you guys are filmmakers so yeah, how, yeah, how yeah. do you feel about that <laughs> I, you know yeah. uh, it is what it is i mean unfortunately you, the stars get the more money yeah. because they're they are the the people who are bringing in the audience mm. as as hollywood seems to to believe that's the case um but i mean the end of the day people on 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 a film on a big film get mm. paid a lot of money yeah I yeah. mean, it's ridiculous amounts of money. Mm. I mean, uh, a star, a uh, lead star, what, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million? You know, that's ridiculous. 50 million yeah. if you're Robert Dan Jr., apparently. Yeah, that's ridiculous <laughs> amounts yeah. of money. Um, um, I mean, I, you know, we always like to talk about Spielberg on this, and yeah. one of the quotes that he made to Stan Lee was, um, you know, you and your team do the same job as me and mine. The only difference is... I do them at twenty four frames a second. You know that that that, that was well, and and also know. the amount of money in film is a lot richer than the amount of money going into comics. Exactly, I, I can guarantee you that. Comparatively, yeah. on a page rate, um, comic writers and artists get paid piss. Hmm. Like it, it's it's very little, and and it's why you see so many writers cranking out so many books. Some cases they were like putting guys on four books a month, not you know nothing like Stan was writing, but but these days to have a writer on four books a month, you'd just be like Jesus, yeah. they they're really having to crank it out. Um, yes, there is a redressing of the balance that needs to happen, and I think has begun to happen. 
Yeah. There's another thing I want to state. Stan loved the limelight. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm willing to bet that if you really look into it, Jack Kirby was probably quite difficult to work with. Um, there was a book recently that had a hundred sort of writers and artists giving their view on Jack Kirby, mm-hmm. like opinions. I think it was just called the Kirby 100. Um, one of the writers posits the theory that the reason why Kirby was so prolific during that time was that he was probably suffering undiagnosed from um, post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. because he was a war vet. Yeah. Um, and that would have also explained some of his demeanour. I'm willing to bet he was probably quite difficult to work with himself. Uh, and I don't want to take anything away from him or insult the guy. The work he did is amazing and is still influencing comic art that oh, yeah. I love today. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're totally, the whole point of this yeah. podcast is we're totally here to um, to honour the dead here yeah. <laughs> with what um, they do, not... Well, not so I, I don't want to dishonour Kirby. No, 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 no. no. Uh, and, and as for Ditko, I have a lot of mixed feelings about Ditko. Because, quite frankly, Ditko did not love the limelight. He, I don't think he was interested in having his name out there, really. I don't think he was interested in the kind of fame that came, you know, limited amount of fame uh, that came with, with comic book success. Um, also, he... I believe he subscribed to, to certain theories like moral objecti- objectivism, mm-hmm. um, which is sometimes called, a, a, you know, Ayn Randis- Randism. Sorry, I, I have trouble pronouncing certain things. <laughs> um, which you'll see people like Zack Snyder often associated with right? nowadays. And everyone has an issue with that. Oh, mm-hmm. look at Zack Snyder. Because it's classed basically as a kind of, almost a kind of fascism in a way. But, I don't get why it's not okay for Zack Snyder to subscribe to those theories and feelings, but it's perfectly okay for Steve Ditko to do mm. it. Um, so all those people carried with them certain difficulties in terms of how you work with them right? and how they would navigate their working thing. And I think part of the problem is, is that Stan got famous. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying it's jealousy, but I, I think to a certain extent, some of those guys missed the boat a bit by not kind of playing along with certain things that he was doing. Not necessarily the the authorship, that kind of auteur theory, but with the showmanship. Mm. Well, he um, was certainly, I mean, you know, Stan yeah. Stan was, was a character, wasn't he? Mm. And uh, um, yeah, he certainly yeah. was very good at that. He was very personable, very, very uh, positive always yeah uh, which was which is what you want to hear you know which is good but um but i am i am conscious of the fact that uh you know we we can talk loads about stanley and you may have a few things you want to wrap up on with that but i also want to make sure we give mr goldman some time as well but no um so i was going to ask each of you just just for a bit of fun um obviously we're movie heaven movie hell so in terms of stan stan's Stanley's cameos. Uh, I was wondering whether I, I've got an idea of what mine are, but w- what your 
what your favourite and least favourite cameo is. So your cameo heaven and cameo I, hell. I'm, I'm not going to do a least favourite. It's it's not. Ah, I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. I, I, I mean, I, I, one I know that just you doesn't know. work. I know well. you don't. Partly because I, I can't hold them all in my head and, yeah. and, and go, oh, actually, that one's not quite as good. Um, but but yeah, well, we, like you say, you know, it's it's all about uh, sort of celebrating the man. Yeah. So I'm going to say that my favourite uh, is the one from the Amazing Spider-Man, which is the one where he's he's the librarian at uh, Midtown oh, okay. Science High School, and he's got his uh, headphones on. Yes. He's listening to his classical music, you know, and he's he's sort of pottering around. And in the background, the whole library's being like destroyed by the lizard and Spider-Man just fighting behind him, and he's just completely oblivious. <laughs> and, and and that I just thought that was that was great, you know. Fantastic, Paul. Do you have guests first? Uh, no, no, yeah. Uh, again, I can't pick a, a least favorite. All right, don't I've worry about the least favorite. Sorry, I, I'm ruining one. the whole thing. I apologize. <laughs> um, but definitely the first Iron Man movie where he gets mistaken for Hugh Hefner because <laughs> yes, one, it's it's a dead on. I, I I've got a kind of feeling that Stan probably picked that himself. Yeah, <laughs> that he probably wanted to do. Hefner because everybody wanted to be Hugh yeah. Hefner, right? And that was it. I, and I think I think Hefner was always a fan, a, 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 a hero to Stanley. Yeah. Because I think Stan saw what he'd done with Playboy, and thought, "I'll have some of that, but I'll do it in comics." And he wasn't necessarily interested in the, uh, the kind <laughs> all of, the other goodies that went with yeah, it. All yeah, the, yeah, all the accoutrements <laughs> yeah. of Hugh Hefner's life. Yeah. But he was definitely interested in the success. Yeah, and I, I, he was a family man. He, you know, I absolutely. Think he, he did, yeah, no, no, he went no. through maybe two marriages in his yes. entire life yeah. Yeah. in ninety-five years. Yeah, um, you know, in a country with a staggeringly high divorce rate, even back then. So I, I, I think he was. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I think that Hefner thing was a very yeah. knowing kind of nod. Yeah, because it was Hefner in the first film and Larry King in the second yes. one, wasn't it? <laughs> that he got mistaken for, which I think is quite amusing. But yeah, okay. It's that and there pick. is one thing I do want to say about Stanley at the end, if I don't, if you don't mind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay, but Simon, uh, my favourite cameo would be uh, in Avengers Two when they're at the party. He's uh, yes. one of the uh, World War Two vets, and uh, Thor's drinking this sort of uh brew isn't it it's like oh yeah, you Asgardian. cannot you can't take this he's like i can take anything and then you see him being dragged out <laughs> <laughs> i love that that was <laughs> that was cool that's right he's being dragged out at the end of the party isn't he yeah i mean that party was great overall in that film because uh, <laughs> i did love the bit where um was it um it was captain america who nearly moved the um force hammer wasn't it yeah oh yes they were all trying yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a great scene yeah well for me it, for, for the longest time uh, everybody knows i'm a big fan of captain america winter soldier and for the longest time it was the bit where he was the security guard who comes to find the costume missing and goes i am so fired <laughs> right but but the next captain of civil war actually topped it when he had the delivery for Tony Stank. Oh, I yes. just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so right. so it, one Captain America topped the next for the uh, for the cameo yeah. for me. But, but, but they're all he, pretty good. He's played security guards quite a bit, hasn't he? He has, yeah. Delivery men, security guards, <laughs> <laughs> it's like celebrities. 
The one I am going to say the one I didn't like though. <laughs> Sod it. I'm not meaning to run him down, but I just didn't think the film was particularly good. All this bit in the Amazing Spider-Man Two, right? When Peter's coming for the graduation and he swings in his Spidey and he comes out and he's got his his cap and gown on and he's forgot to take his mask off and it's like oh and Stanley goes. I recognise that man or whatever. <laughs> that that one I just did cringe when oh, I watched yeah. it. I'm like, nah, come on. <laughs> I, I mean, well, just to finish up on the cameos bit, I, I will say that I do like the whole kind of like, uh, almost like linking cinematic, Marvel Cinematic Universe thing of, Stan, of Stan Lee being like one of the watchers. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, wouldn't it have been good if they had like a sort of, on the, one of the Blu-rays, like a one-shot film or something yeah. where he was I the watcher and because they kind of is, is it in Gar- guardians, guardians 2 or something yeah. they kind of imply that don't they mm. when he's there yeah. and 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 that would well i mean it would it would make it make sense apart from just being a you know oh that guy looks a, a lot yeah. like that delivery bloke that security guard and <laughs> and, and hugh hefner <laughs> yeah. yeah i like that you know the idea that you know, he's still eternal. He's still sort of out up there, sort of watching things with a twinkle in his eye. Ah, oh, mm. maybe he is. And Paul, sorry, you want to add one more there, thing about? There, there Stan. is one thing, funny enough, that comes right back to the MCU. Despite good or bad, what you want to say about Stanley, um, you know, I've read up on this. He was always a man with a vision, and that vision was right from the sixties to get Marvel characters on TV and film. Mm. Yeah. He he wanted to do that right at the very beginning. Yes. Um, well, he admits that he was very envious when um, when Tim Burton's Batman film yeah. came out. He was very... Because he was good friends with Bob Kane, mm. apparently, or at least they knew each other or yeah. whatever. And he was, he was quite envious of the fact that Bob Kane had got his character onto the big screen. And uh, at that point, yeah. I think... Um, I'm right in saying, yeah, at that point, there hadn't been any big screen Marvel heroes. No. They'd just been the stuff on TV no, at that Bla- stage. Even Blade was still... Yeah, Blade was still a number of years seven away. Seven or eight wasn't years it? away, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, he always had that vision. Uh, and in fact, even in the 60s, um, Fellini was up at the Marvel offices discussing doing wow. a, an original film for Marvel, not a based on their characters. Um, and Imagine that, was that entirely because yeah, the Marvel offices <laughs> were like the place to be in the sixties. Like there, there was a lot of celebrity kind of flow through there, you know. Um, but I, I think he was always a man of vision, and it's because of that vision. And yes, you have again, you have to credit people like Kevin Feige and RV Arad that you now have the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm. And I no, think especially Kevin a, Feige, yeah, especially <laughs> Kevin Feige. Yeah, I mean, it's a great tribute to Stan Lee. Yeah, that his greatest achievement. He, he he got exactly what he wanted, which was those characters on the big screen, featuring mm. him, yep. credited as a producer for every single one of those. Um, every single TV show he's credited as a executive producer yeah. for like the last twenty years, yeah. essentially. Isn't yeah, it? and I, I my hats off to the man for yeah. for pushing that forward because I I think if he hadn't have been and I know he got that sort of chairman emeritus position in the 90s that kind of meant that he didn't really have any influence over Marvel's day-to-day runnings, and that's fine. But I suspect without that constant vision hammering away all those years, you wouldn't have the MCU now. And that 
that has been very important to a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing film and TV podcasts because I'd have nothing to review. <laughs> well, that, I, think, I think that's a very positive thing and links it right back to movie heaven, movie hell. We're talking yeah. MCU. So there you go. That's cool. That's excellent. So is that <laughs> anything else on Stan or? No, I, I mean, think, uh, we, could... I think we should uh, sort of move on to William Goldman. All right then. So um, moving on now then to uh, screenwriter and novelist William Goldman. Um, as always... Uh, you know, want to invite you guys as the guests to uh, to kick things off if 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 any of you particularly want to. Um, really, it's about you know, again, as we always say, how did you first discover the man, and you know, what sort of work of his do you like the most? Okay, I guess I'll I'll begin. Um, when if you're if you're if you're a filmmaker or you're someone who's sort of studying filmmaking, uh, especially especially screenwriting there are certain sort of like key scripts that you get sort of you know people will say you need to read this this is like one of like the sort of foundational things or this person is a great writer you should look at their stuff and William Goldman was one of those writers mm-hmm. you know there were there were certain scripts which are always bandied about you know and you know, like the likes of Butch Cassidy's and Nuts Kid was one of them, you know, in, in, in the same way that, you know, like Robert Town was another one with like with Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And there were certain certain ones where, you know, and, 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 you know, as I was sort of learning about stuff, I mean, he was still a big time screenwriter. He was still someone whose, whose uh, work was in the cinema. Mm-hmm. So I was very much aware of him as a name writer. Um, so there was that, but then I think really it was his book uh, *Adventures in the Screen Trade*, which really sort of like cemented uh, my sort of like view of him, um, which is uh, which is one of those sort of, one of the first kind of like war stories book, you know, sort of Hollywood behind tell all behind the scenes thing, and it's like a writer's point of view of uh, mainly. Uh, sort of like 70s uh, and into 80s kind of filmmaking mm-hmm. and then he did a he did a follow-up called uh, which lie did i tell mm-hmm. uh, and and i absolutely recommend those to anyone who's who's at all interested in kind of like the history of hollywood or just you know sort of juicy sort of like hollywood stories or even uh, you know and i think you know sadly a lot of the sort of stupid uh, like uh, you know hubris and and craziness of like what uh, of what goes on you know in the in the making of studio pictures i don't think that's changed a lot you know that's so so that i think there are still sort of good lessons that can be learned there um and then you know he was just he was a mark of quality and there are a lot a number of his movies which i know we're going to get around to talking about Mm -hmm. uh which uh i love yeah unreservedly and even and even some of these sort of lesser works, uh, quote unquote, you know, because I mean, that's the difficulty is when you ever you talk about a screenwriter, is they're so reliant on on people translating their scripts well, mm-hmm. and I don't, and that didn't always happen, you know, it doesn't always happen with writers, you know, you, you have to be lucky, um, and you know, he, you know, he he did well with with a lot of his kind of. Um, 
like, like sort of the people he he collaborated with in terms of directors, you know, at the sort of long like whether it's uh, George Roy Hill or the likes of um, Richard Attenborough, you mm-hmm. know, where where he sort of worked with them time and time again, um, and I think that you can see that. Um, so. But I feel like I'm just rattling on about no, no, no. how much I, you, how you, much I, no, I, I loved him and he meant a lot to me, so I'm going to sort of hand it over now. No, but you're absolutely right. I mean, just as a side to what you were saying as well, because um, very similar when I was at film school studying those sort of things, but there is another book that he did which weren't about his scripts called Four Screenplays. And basically it looked at, um, he broke down why these films and why these screenplays worked. And it was a, it, it was like a, a Bible for me, that book. And the, and the, the four screenplays were Silence of the Lambs, um, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Dances with Wolves and Thelma and Louise. And he goes wow. through why those four films work and the reason they work is because of the script structure. And he said, they're all very different, mm. but they all work on, on different. And he takes you through the whole step. So that, that's another book that he wrote, um, you know, I guess towards the late nineties, early, early two thousands. And, and that's another great read in addition to the ones right. you mentioned, just for anyone interested out there. And, and actually there's a, there, there is a fourth one that he wrote. Oh, was there? Yeah, okay. kind of. It, it was a book he did. In fact, and a fifth. I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> there's a book he did on, which was a collection of his essays that he was writing for Premiere, I believe in the early 90s, maybe late 90s, Okay. Uh, called The Big Picture, which okay. I think I have a copy of somewhere at home. Uh, and then another book, or maybe I'm thinking of, I might be thinking of, John Gregory Dunn. Yeah, I think maybe I'm thinking of John Gregory Dunn. There was one where he was judging... Actually, maybe it was Goldman. He was judging the Cannes Film Festival and in the same year, he went off to judge a... like a beauty pageant or something. (laughs) And he wrote a book comparing those two experiences (laughs) of being on the judging panel. I think that might be apocryphal. It might be John Gregory Dunn I'm thinking of. Uh, but yeah, uh, and I can't remember what it was called. Okay. Or it was a year working on Bo- where he worked on Broadway. I can't remember. It's it's all kind of lost to my memory now. That's right. If I had the books in front of me, I I I they're in the introductions. I think he talks about them to to which lie did I tell? And right. Uh, but what about time, what, yeah. what what other things about him? I mean, um, do you remember what sort of I, first look, films you saw? Or I think. Does anyone know if there were other books on screenwriting kicking around at the time he wrote Adventures in Screenwriting? Adventures in Screen Trade? Was. Which was Robert like early McKee, 80s. Uh, well, I know it's early 80s, but Robert McKee's story is the, the other one, mm-hmm. which unfortunately is the one that Hollywood holds up as the Bible. That, uh, that is, came much later, I think. It didn't come, it? Yeah. But I mean, it also takes the Mickey out it, of as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I believe because, uh, which lie did I tell? He talks about Rob McKee's yeah. uh, story and saying how bad it is because there's no, <laughs> well, because there are no set rules to, to, yeah. to telling a story. But unfortunately, through this book, it's, Hollywood has a way of enforcing what they want. Mm. So it's kind of like, um, Back in the 70s when you have these maverick filmmakers come along because Hollywood was, you know, 
they were running out of ideas you know musicals were not bringing in the numbers that they used to and so they opened the doors to young independent filmmakers uh, you mm. know uh, the film school generation and as uh, soon as so there was you know this great outburst of uh, creativity you know stuff that would not have been made before and then of course once uh, Jaws and Star Wars came along and showed them how they could make a lot of money those doors were closed to other filmmakers you know and we we've been stuck with those 70s filmmakers since well we have i mean you know there's you think about it, we still oh, have so Scorsese. stuck with well we've got still got Scorsese. nobody's taken over from scorsese no. nobody's taken over from spielberg mm. um you know we're still living with you know lucas through all the star wars films love him or hate him he's the creator of those films and they're still going on mm. you know Rob McKee's story is another form of Hollywood saying, well, you know, you have to have this happen within the first 10 pages. You know, you have to introduce your character. You have to have the inciting incident. And I remember in uh, which lie did I tell? It's like, well, you know, you, stories do not have to be told that way. Mm. It just makes, you know, it just makes films very uh, cookie cutter, very sort of, you know, you know formulaic, yeah, very formulaic. Yeah. But um, I, you know, when I first started filmmaking, um, you know, I would read anything on filmmaking behind the yeah. scenes. And the very first book I read was um, Robert Robert Rodriguez's uh, Rebel Without yeah, Crew. Great book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, amazing book. That is an amazing read. No, definitely. In fact, that this was around the same time because I read loads of books mm. all together, and there was that screenplay yeah. one. There was um, obviously Robert McKee's story and, you know, Sid Field's books and all yeah. that. They all yeah. sort of came at the same time. Um, but yeah. it's, it's interesting, actually, what you're saying about the sort of, um, you know, it's kind of our generation, the earlier part of our generation are the ones still making the uh, the, the, the films at the moment. And, and I'm guessing it's not going to be long before, you know, probably the closest is Damien Chavez. Chevelle, whatever his yeah. name is, yeah, who's he, he's, he's, um, I think he's in his mid thirties or something. But you know, soon we're going to get like a millennial filmmaker that's going to be lauded, um, no doubt. You know, on on it on his or her way up. Yeah, yeah. the tree it's, it's now. It's kind of funny because like... <laughs> you know we're still living with uh, filmmakers who made their names during the seventies, and they're still going. And there's nobody sort of come along to replace them. I mean, there's there's been you know you've got your David Finchers and Christopher uh, Nolan, Christopher Nolan and, and stuff like that, but um, they they're not sort of held in the same regard as a Scorsese or a Coppola, you know. These people who, you know, they had a, a absolute you know put their their print onto onto films then but you know. also i think they had the good fortune if you'd like to be around at a time when people were actually talking about movies oh gotcha where it was a serious topic of discussion every day uh and you know movies have gone through that rebirth now people are very much focused on how yeah to get a movie how to watch a movie how they're watching a movie mm. You know, uh, Netflix is a thing you do mm. now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, Consumption models have changed. Sport, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we talk um, about that a lot. Uh, well, uh, it's, and, it's, uh, yeah. it's interesting because I, I watched um, is it, uh, Beyond the, the Wind. 
the um, oh other side of the wind. Other the, side the, of the wind, which yeah. I, I haven't watched that yet, but I've watched the documentary on the document- that movie, which is this is uh, the awesome Wells, thing, which yeah. apparently you kind of have to watch as a companion piece yeah, to yeah, it. To, yeah. to I, I, I the watched the documentary first and then watched the film. Yeah. I think is probably the best way to do it because the film is baffling. Right, it is is a lot of stuff thrown on you at you. But it was amazing because I think this is one of the only films with Pauline Kells in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she Pauline loved Kell- everyone, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> no, not. <laughs> but, I mean, going back to, you know, to, to William Goldman, I mean, I, I just, his, his way of writing just, you know, the behind the scenes stories was just great. I mean, it had such a great humour to it and, you can see uh, his sort of fingerprints all over Butch Cassidy and the Sundance mm. Kid. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, it's very, I mean, I mean, I didn't watch, I mean, I'd seen that film as a kid, but I never sit, I sat down and watched it from beginning to end. I knew bits of it, you know. <laughs> the famous and, bits, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, so, you know, actually finally watching it, you forget how, you know, what a fun film it is for the yeah. most part. And how you feel at the end, you know. Yeah. Spoilers. Yeah. Like they die. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, yeah. But, well, they freeze frame because 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 it, 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 it was that and all the president's men were the two that he won the Academy Awards mm. for, wasn't it? So. Um, Although um, I think he probably deserved one for Marathon Man. He deserved one for yeah. a lot, a lot of them, yeah. didn't he? But oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you know, there's the, the work there is. Uh, I mean, one of one of my favourites of his, which is obviously an adaptation of a, of, a, of a Stephen King novel, is is Misery. I've talked yes. about Misery before yeah. on the podcast, and um, you know, I I, lo- I love that film. I think that's just uh, wow. of all the Stephen King adaptations, it's well, probably love, my favourite. I love favorite. his adaptation of his own work, Princess Bride. Well, of course, yeah. yes, yes, and it's <laughs> you know it that he because uh, I read the book. Uh, not so long ago, and there was a, a sample of um, of of a sequel mm. uh, where it was, uh, was it Princess Buttercup. It was called or something like that, <laughs> and it was um, it was kind of dark because in the sample he gives, he talks about um, Buttercup actually dying in in childbirth. Oh, I was okay. yeah. There's a whole thing where she's being rescued by the giant and. She's given choice. I just, I just remember it being kind of. It really was kind of a lot darker than what the actual, you know, like the Princess Bride book yeah. is, or the film as well, because that's you know this magical realism, you know, very much um, breaking the fourth wall and mm-hmm. you know just inconceivable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, the, the thing I, I what I was trying to get to, you know, asking. <laughs> what, what screenwriting books were out there at the time when he wrote Avengers Screenshot which I think was about 81 that it got released um, 82 something like that maybe 83 latest I'm trying to remember this because he goes year by year of who was, who was the biggest movie star in mm-hmm. over a certain period doesn't he and it, it's he usually does, yeah. Burt Reynolds or Clint Eastwood Burt Reynolds yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he will no, we also lost. Yes, recently. yes, um, we, we, yeah. we we did a, a did, tribute oh, episode on Bert as well. But he made screenwriting accessible, I think, to a lot of people. 
certainly a lot of people of our generation. Mm, yeah. Well, um, I know. I know up to that point. Um, by the way, it was it, 1983. I've looked it up because I just wanted to. <laughs> yes, Adventures in Screen Trade was 1983. Yeah. yeah. Because for a writer to learn how to do a screenplay, they would have to go and find other screenplays. Yeah. And I think um, at the time, up to that point, screenplays were not very available. I mean, I know there's like a whole lot of bootlegs and stuff like that. Mm. You could, you could find them through trade shows we, and stuff we probably know? went sitting in this room we probably went through the golden age of film book availability which for me was sort of 1993 up uh-huh. because you had the Guerrilla Filmmaker's Guide coming out yeah. yeah, you had Faber were just releasing brilliant film book after brilliant film yeah, book all the time uh, yeah. you had the centenary of cinema coming out I mean they were giving away screenplays free with total film Yes, and neon and magazines yeah. like that. It was just pre. It was just yeah. pre-internet, wasn't it? Yeah, before, it, before everything was available. Well, even that thing's and, like Drew uh, Scriptorama. How yeah. great is that site? Yeah, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there weren't a lot of books on screenwriting at that time, no. as I recall. And mm. in fact, I didn't hear about Goldman until I picked up. I had one of the early issues of Empire, mm-hmm. and in that magazine, this is our new, you know. Some of this stuff was at the time. They were talking about this new screenwriting computer program you could get <laughs> called, called Final, Final Draft, Draft. <laughs> that would help you plot out the story. Yeah. And what an outrage it was that. And they they quote Adventures in the Screen Trade quite a lot in that. And that was the first time I'd ever heard it. Yeah. And then I, I started to hear more about it, and I started to hear about Goldman, and I, I kind of tracked down the book, um, and read it, and it fantastic book but it's not an instructional guide on screenwriting at no. all no it's it's, well, it's about think, him. yeah but, but I mean I think there is, it's scattered throughout there are yeah. there are bits it's it's mm. it's funny there's um, a book that you got me Clive which I'll be in my trailer yes. oh wow yes. what's this that's, uh, no, that's John Badham isn't it that's John Badham and oh, it's, right. it's yes. not only is it a lesson in how he directs actors but it's also a lot of war stories coming from yeah. like uh, Saturday Night Fever and yeah actually the, the title of the the book comes from Saturday Night Fever because <laughs> John Travolta was uh, a, <laughs> very upset the fact that they used the stunt double for him to go out onto the bridge when the girl's right. trying to jump, you know, commit suicide. And he was like, I haven't walked like that or crawl like that. And they, they shot it in a way where he, he then did it, but it was different to what the other guy had done. So when you watch the film, it doesn't quite match up, but he, he talks about how, how to sort of work with actors. Right. And it's mm. quite, I thought that was very instructional, but the stories themselves, are instructional, yes, yeah. because they're they're examples of mostly with John Badham. They were examples of how not to talk to actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think him and Richard Pryor did not get on very yeah. well. Yeah. and his story about how he got out of um, the Whiz was fantastic. Right, <laughs> I'm gonna have to track this book down. I think. Yeah, no, there, there were. You're right. There were a lot around that time. Yeah. Um, and, and but but you're absolutely right as well. I mean, Goldman's book or books uh, weren't so much about in in the sort of Robert McKee yeah. mold about how you should structure a screenplay or structure a story. They were more those stories would come out through using examples mm. of, of films that already 
existed and um you, you know it's that old thing it's like you, you mentioned final draft and it's funny i've got a friend that i'm always talking about the sort of you know the, the what package to use and what's what's the best thing and i said to him at the end of the day you know this these are just tools to help you it's, it doesn't matter really if you're writing something on a you know an a4 pad and pen or, or you, you know it, it's 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 the quality of the stuff that counts isn't it you know um, <laughs> well yes and no i mean yeah you can write a script on paper or uh or a word document but at the end of the day um when you're presenting it to oh, people then you to have it as a sellable yeah you um, you, you want it just product, in, a, in, yeah. a, in a format that they recognize of course because you know if you don't do that then it they'll dismiss it out of hand straight away. So that's what the sort of final draft well, yeah. and Celtex does is, is, you know, it's just a tool to say it, you know, just formatting it. So the dialogues and, yeah. you know, well, it's, it's how they plan, plan, you know, plan yeah. and budget a movie around it. I know, so, but it's, like, know. it's, 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 so, it's so stupid because they say uh, a minute of uh, well, pages of a script can be a minute of film, but then Rule of thumb, yeah, but you know we know that not to be true. I mean, mm. I written what, a three-page. You've got one line, and it says a massive chase, yeah. <laughs> a massive, massive car chase in yeah. shoes, and then yeah. that's it. It's was one it? line, and the Indians <laughs> take the fall. Yeah, <laughs> it's the famous one that the words get. Or for um, uh, crouching tiger, hidden dragon, they fight. Yeah. They fight. They, they go, fight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and boy, do they. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I know from personal experience, a three-page script turned out to be a 10 minute film so it, it, it's it's a load of bollocks really mm-hmm. but it's it's a rule of thumb that you yeah. know that, that people cling to yeah i mean it's weird that the, the actual most instructional book i've ever read on how to be a working writer even though i never really actually became a working writer but um was there was a fantastic book and, and i'm not and i'm not sort of pissing on Goldman to say this because he is a terrific writer but was by John Gregory Dunn um, which I don't know if any of you read it's called Monster Living Off the Big Screen and it's the story of John Gregory Dunn and his wife Joan Didion um, were writing a story of a newsreader in America called Jessica Savage she was a real person mm-hmm. um, she had gone through horrible bouts of physical abuse and I think possibly sexual abuse when she was younger uh, she developed a, a taste for cocaine as she kind of rose up the ranks of American newsreaders she was beaten by a sort of newsreader guru kind of taught her everything he knows um, her first husband hung himself from the rafters of their house uh, I think after admitting that was gay and had been gay like for their you know entire time they'd, they'd known each other uh, and she drowned in a few feet of mud after a car accident in a rainstorm uh that film wow. that script became up close and personal with robert redford and michelle pfeiffer and the and the book is this fascinating story of them taking that story and turning it into up close and personal at the behest of disney and the number wow. of directors they go through and the inner workings of, you know, the the real kind of boardroom stuff and why you end up, you know, 
taking this true, very bleak story and turning it into up close and personal. That's a really good instructional book on screenwriting if you ever want to, like, on being a working writer. But I think Goldman knew the value of gossip. Like, of not gossip, but, you know, of the kind of fun sort of story. I mean, there's that fascinating story in um, Which Lie Did I Tell where he, he admits to being obsessed with the height of movie stars because he's he's something... Well, Goldman was something like six foot and... Uh, he finally found out by jumping into the pool when Sylvester Sloan was in Cannes that, that he's taller than Sylvester Sloan. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I, I think, again, like Stan Lee, he had a twinkle in his eye. Yes. You know? Yeah. He, he, he wasn't a bad boy, but he could certainly be naughty, and I think that there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah. And a lot of fun to be had. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. And he was frequently... You know how many times has he been quoted that famous like nobody knows anything, yeah. Ryan, right? Yeah. From Adventures in the Screen Trade, yes, absolutely. And it's sort of like this this truism it's it's so true. get, it gets yeah. rattled out. You know the idea that 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 there's, there's no such thing as a sure thing, even if you think, oh, of course this this movie X is going to make is going to be a massive blockbuster and be successful because of it has all these things. It's it, yeah, there's no such thing as a sure thing, you know, mm. and. Yeah, I mean, I I I I think I'd I'd like to sort of come back to his movies. Yes, definitely. Now. Yeah. I mean, uh, he was also a playwright and a novelist, but I must confess I haven't read any of it. I've not read his novels, although I do want to read the Princess Bride novel because mm. I because I love the film so much. Um, Everybody loves that film. Don't they? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I've, it's kind of it, I I almost sort of like want to sort of divide his work up into sort of like two strands there's the sort of like really kind of witty funny stuff where it's kind of like where I can really see his voice if you see what I mean mm -hmm. like things like Butch Cassidy like The Princess Bride uh, like even things like Maverick mm -hmm. yeah right yeah uh, where it's 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 so kind of like sparky and you can see how much the actors just get to sort of play with and just pop off each other. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and it's so apparent. But then on the other hand, you've got stuff uh, like All the President's Men, where it's, it's so, where it's, where, it, where it's almost like a completely different kind of screenwriting, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're taking something which is like really big and, and kind of unwieldy and you're sort of like carve, like carving it into a compelling thriller story. Yes. So I mean, all the presidents men rightly is celebrated. It's an amazing, it's an amazing film. He deserves all the awards for it. But I think a slight, an underrated film. I, I think is a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. Yes. And whilst perhaps perhaps the way the final product suffers a little bit from that sort of like celebrity cameo kind of sort of thing. I think it's a really compelling story, and the way he takes Operation Market Garden, this 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 sort of uh, incredibly ambitious plan to sort of t to, to take like the retake the Netherlands from the Nazis through these series of paratroop landings, and sort of you know it's the kind of thing it's it's the stuff of war games and the stuff of kind of like really dry history textbooks and sort of beats it out into kind of like these kind of like understandable kind of chunks and you can see it and and you know and the heart of that film 
you've got this sort of like that sort of heartbreaking story of the Anthony Hopkins character who's just sort of stuck there like in, in the worst possible place mm-hmm. waiting for some kind of help and just gradually getting ground down and so you've got the likes of that and then you've got all these other sort of big personalities mm-hmm. and he and it and it's just the way he sort of shuffles all that and 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 at no point you feel lost in that film no never yeah. lost never bored even you know, though it's so yeah. you, I mean, so you've got that and 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 then you know and then then there's also like how good a sort of adapter he is of other people's work you've already mentioned misery which I, which is great but i mean even like his own work mm-hmm. obviously princess bride but like magic yeah, well, I was gonna, I was gonna mention magic because that that is actually one of my, uh, unsurprisingly, I'm sure to people who know me, but that's that's one of my favourites of, of of his actually, and um, obviously, you know, he he well he he got that relationship through a bridge too far, you know, it was obviously where he met Attenborough and um, Anthony Hopkins, and um, you, you know, magic was I think originally um, even Spielberg was was attached to it at one point before obviously the collaboration with uh, with Attenborough on that but but that is one of those is one of the Attenborough's films that's that's not necessarily talked about a lot and one of also one of Hopkins performances which often isn't dwelled on that much yeah I think it's actually a genuinely effective thriller and obviously it's got a great score by Jerry Goldsmith as well uh, so I, I really like that one so I'm really Please, you mentioned, but again, that's adapted from one, one of his own is novels. Is that the one with it? the 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 ventriloquist, ventriloquist yeah, dummy? Yeah, also, yeah, yeah, sort of a sort of a weird precursor to I don't know Chucky or whatever. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, um, and and but that's an example, like you said, he's got his adapted screenplays, but he's also got his adaptations of his own literary work, which um, uh, you know, Magic was definitely one of his. His novels, as was you know, Princess Bride and whatever, mm. but yeah, those work really well. And but, yeah. Marathon Man as well. Marathon yeah. Man, absolutely. Yeah. His own adaptation, I think, was it not? It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he also did a lot of work on on, you know, scripts that he ne- didn't necessarily get credited for, but he did a lot of the sort of script doctor work on on. Yeah, on I mean, this this he was like the script doctor for so long and there's so many films where it's got his fingerprints on it but he never got credited i mean some some of the stuff will pop up in uh in not imdb if you look it will say so and so it will say william goldwell uncredited like uh, papillon mm-hmm. where, where he did a lot of rewrites on that but then there's other stuff where you kind of have to read his books to sort of like oh i didn't know he wrote he, he touch that one at all mm-hmm. you know uh, because there's there's so much of this it, there's still a sort of a bit of a code of silence about who's worked on scripts because of the whole writers guild uh, adjudication thing yeah. and and who and who and the idea that you know whoever gets the screen credit is you know they are the writers even if other people have like I don't know if listeners understand this, but there is this thing over in the states where the screenwriter, if there's other screenwriters involved, they then have to try and fight for credit. Yeah, and it's the whole arbitration thing the, or whatever yeah. they call it, and isn't it? it? It's, yeah, it's such a bizarre thing because you think that Is they that right? would have a contract where they would be credited, you know, but not necessarily. Well, there's even I, I found out. Uh, 
deco is so back, which I was really surprised at. Did you know that the fact that they use the word, if, if they have the name of two screenwriters... Oh, the and and the yeah, ampersand. and the ampersand. Thing, yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. Is it ampersand as they wrote it together and yes. and is, is they, the word they as they rewrote, wrote it, the, uh, other, rewrote yeah. the other one? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, when you think about it, it's this bizarrely kind of intricate system yeah. of... I don't even know what to call it, really. really. You know, it, it's it's so strange. Yeah. Um, now that there is actually, I've listened to a really uh, um, talking plugging other podcasts now, but there's a podcast called the the Q and A. It's a it's a, okay. um, a a US podcast. Oh, the Jeff Goldsmith one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. The Jeff and they had um uh they had Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza on talking oh, about wow. Die Hard, uh, yeah. and of course because that went through all sorts of things because you yeah. had the the novel by Roderick Thorpe. Yeah. yeah. And then you had the first draft that was done by, you know, Jeb Stewart or whatever. And then, and then obviously Stephen E. D'Souza came in and sort of worked with, by that point, they need to have Bruce Willis attached. Mm. So he worked with him to get some of the sort of humor stuff in. And of course the title came from, well, there's an argument as to whether it came from Shane Black or, or Joe Silver. Uh, yeah, you know, that's one of those arguments. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what, what the answer to that is. But, but, but yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it is this whole Hollywood model of, of screen credit, a bit like, it's weirdly, you know, this sort of parallels what we were talking about with the, the authorship of, of the comic books mm. when we were talking about Stan earlier. Um, you, you know, it is interesting who actually gets a screen credit for this stuff and who doesn't. And, and in the case of Goldman, it's quite a lot of stuff that his fingerprints are over that you wouldn't be aware well, of unless you IMDB'd it or whatever. I, I was you know. <laughs> really surprised to hear that he'd, he'd had a hand in Goodwill Hunting. Yes, yes. Which, the was, was the a guy in Affleck and yeah, Damon. Yeah, a, yeah. a consultancy. <laughs> yes. Because did, didn't did they, my understanding is originally they had a thriller plot running through it towards the end where oh, Matt really? Damon is un, un, on the run from the government. Like, literally, you know when he's going for all those interviews and things? Right. Apparently, that takes a sinister turn, and they're trying to get him to, you know, break codes. And oh, uh, and he just went... missed the heart of it. Yeah, and yeah. He, he just went, no. He went, just lose that. <laughs> just get, get rid of that. You'll be fine. Just take it out. The, the drama is there in the characters. and Yeah. Um, and he writes about that in Adventures of Screen Trade in the fact that he, like... Or he, perhaps in the big picture, where... He goes, oh, yeah, you know, I wrote the whole thing. Of course, I, I wrote the whole thing. They couldn't have possibly, being young, talented, and good-looking, they couldn't have possibly come up with the <laughs> film. And he's just like, no, actually, all I did was this. And that was it. It was apparently working with them for a couple of days to try and iron out these problems. Um, and they've been living the dream ever since. They have, indeed. <laughs> they have yes. indeed. Um, he does a fascinating... Have any of you seen the, the US edition of Panic Room? The US edition. Yeah, yeah. so what, uh, in fact, the... I think they put it out in the UK as well. They did a three disc version. Oh, of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, yes, I got the three and, disc. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. David Kep sits there and has a conversation, a commentary over the film with with William Goldman, That's and it's right, fantastic. He does, which I have listened to, but it yeah. was so many years ago that I can't remember I, I too much it recently, about it. So I should listen it, to it's that. Great. Yes, yeah, it's great. I mean, oh, he, shit, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because again, great. Panic Room's one of those Fincher movies that yeah. I actually thinks pretty good, but some people didn't like it. But 
talk about that after. It's a whole other podcast, isn't it? I was going to say, it's all right, but it ain't no seven. No, it isn't. It isn't. That's true. Hence why we picked those, Simon. Did, when we did our episode, go oh, and yes. check that out, folks. I've got so many, so many episodes of you guys to, to, to now go back and watch, <laughs> to listen to, rather. Um, uh, that's all my weekends uh, gone, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think with Goldman, he, he was a fascinating figure because he went out there and he actually talked about it publicly and went, you know, it's this. It's not mm. quite what you think. But at the same time, I think like like Stan, he knew where the paycheck was coming from, because one of his big things in his book, and it's a thing that that Joe, do you know Joe Esterhaus? Yes, yeah. the guy that Who wrote, also wrote uh, yeah. American Animal was it yeah. the name of his yes. book? Is that right, Hollywood? Yeah, animal well, he, he, yeah, but he also Hollywood Animal. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. wrote like that. Is that his book on screenwriting? Yeah, yes, it's his, well, right. it's his book about, it's not on screenwriting, it's but it's his about, book about the industry. Yeah. 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 And he, he berates Goldman in that. Right. Because Goldman suggests that your priority as a working writer should be getting the next job. Right. Which I don't think is necessarily wrong. And I'm sure, Keith, you know, you, you've been a working actor. Uh, you are a working actor. In fact, you know, you would... <laughs> That's questionable. No, 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 yes. but, but, but I, I want to be clear. Should, the priority is to get a job, right? I mean, that's you, you want acting jobs. Of course, and yeah. I'm sure there are some where you're like, I'm really, really passionate. I'm sure you're passionate about everything you do, but there are some where it's just like, okay, I just need to keep acting and keep working yeah, and yeah, keep yeah. getting my face well, out there. and Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, tried, tried the freelancing in both... <laughs> That and filmmaking no, no, for, but, for many a year. But to a certain like, extent, and you know. look, I'm sure any one of us having <laughs> tried, you know, maybe to make films, you guys perhaps more successfully, or almost definitely more successfully than me, you, you, you if, a, if a good screenwriting job came along, irregardless, you're probably going to go, yeah, I'll, I'll take that nice, well-paid screenwriting job. I mean, I... I I well, yeah, there, there, well, there is yeah. that. There is that with with any sort of artistic endeavor. If yeah. you go, there is that sort of um, point where before you can kind of pick and choose what you do, you have to be able to do it right. Yeah. So it, it's it's that you've got to kind of build that momentum and get that career going, which sadly I never achieved. But you, well, you know, a lot of my heroes and whatever that they, they did those things and they paid their dues to the point where they were then able to sort of not only pick and choose what projects they wanted to do, but pick and choose what they were going to do. So they would become, in the case of actors, they would become producers and then maybe directors yeah. as well. And, and you know, that's happened for years and is continuing to happen, yeah. you know, right now as well. So, um, you know, but that is a whole other podcast, you know. <laughs> but, but uh, Yeah. <laughs> You know, and I think he used that to his advantage in terms of getting on board with some pretty spectacular directors during that sort of 80s and 70s and 80s period. I mean, Alan J. Pakula, John Schlesinger, um, as you say, Attenborough, uh, yeah. the, the, like Rob Reiner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't doubt that he's done some work for Spielberg at some point. I, I'm uh, willing to bet question, he probably actually. has. He's probably done script script, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely the Spielberg connection. If you want to make one, mm. is it's loose. But I've said it before. I, I really do feel that the the post works as a perfect companion piece to, to all the president's wow. men. It's 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 you know it's really good. I mean, it's not intentional, but, uh, but you know you yeah, can you can that because where 
all the president's men ends is a cliffhanger, which everyone kind of knew the answer to by then because it, it was fact and it had happened on whether or not they were going to publish the documents. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it? it's kind of the and other then, way around, though. Where, where, oh, the, right, where okay. the post ends is, is, is the beginning of the Watergate. Because okay. yeah. that's obviously yeah. about the Pentagon Papers, and then the the Watergate um, was was the right. next thing. Thank that you. The, the, I... So so it kind of one sort of dovetails into the other, but uh, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Um, and you've got the Ben Bradley character. Yes, right? yes. It, yeah. it changes from Tom Hanks to Jason Robards. <laughs> but, uh, continuity. Yeah. <laughs> See now, I want to go back and watch both of those back to back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I definitely want to go back and watch both of those now, back to back. Though. Yeah, so, yeah, no, so, it, it, it's sort of it's sort of in a weird way, in a head canony way, it kind mm. of works, you know. <laughs> so yeah, but they're very different. Films. They are very different films. Very yes, different films. Very different just films. the style of them. Because having watched all the Presidents Men uh, recently and the Post, um, the Post is a bit more straightforward. While mm. all the Presidents Men is more of a documentary feel to it. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And also, of course, it was it was more contemporary at the time yeah. Than, yeah, than, than, than it is, you know, when yeah. they made and the post as a obvious period piece. <laughs> and I mean, in, in what what I think we might all love in terms of like quote unquote gossip is it's sometimes more fascinating to read when things go wrong rather than when they go right. Oh yeah, and um, all the president's men for Goldman was quite famously one that he went wrong like drastically wrong and in fact at the end of that chapter in the book i believe he does say if i could live my life again i would do everything except the same except i wouldn't do right all the president's men because oh, wow. he was warned at the time i think by warren Beatty, because he said oh you know what's what's cooler like as a, a director mm-hmm. and warren b just went to him just make sure you've got it down before you go to the floor meaning mm-hmm. just make sure you've all decided on a way forward before you get ready to shoot because this guy is going to be a problem and he was a problem because he made Goldman rewrite it endlessly right. and, it, and when given a choice between two outcomes of scenes he would say oh I want it both ways so show me both <laughs> and and it was a, a complete nightmare and in fact speaking of arbitration Goldman went through really bad problems with um Carl Bernstein, I believe. Or was it Bob Wood? Bob Woodward, okay. I think. Because I think Alan J. Bacula and Robert Redford brought on Bob Woodward and Nora Ephron yes. you're, to, you're correct. Yes, they to did. rewrite the film yeah. unbeknown yeah. To, to Goldman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've read that as well. I, yeah, think, it says, I it, think it says it there's on the on the home media uh, edition yeah. there's a behind the scenes or something which touches on that I believe and I think years later we did get an apology from I think I can't remember if it was Redford or Bob Woodward or Nora Ephron or all of them <laughs> or all of them yeah. like a, an apology to his face saying you know we're really sorry yeah it, it shouldn't have happened that way um, but it, it got him an Academy Award yeah and, and probably well deserved <laughs> I, I think you know going through he, the fire he may like have that. worked hard for it but he got it you know? yeah. <laughs> so no, I mean it's uh, it's interesting. Anything else, Clive, from your point of view? I wanna... Um, I don't know. I mean, 
it's the, it is that thing of he's a, he's a he's a screenwriter, particularly screenwriter of a certain generation, uh, and we are sadly starting to lose that generation mm. you know, of writers, and we, we've already lost a, a number of them um, who worked like exclusively in the studio system. He wasn't really writing for independent film he was writing for studio films and very successfully um you know albeit you know with a lot of dramas behind the scenes and Mm -hmm. you know with all the sort of script doctoring and various bits and pieces but i mean you just look at that sort of run of stuff he has from the sort of like from the 60s through to the 90s you know um and it's so consistently good Mm -hmm. you know and it's you know that there are very few other film other screenwriters you can put in that same category you know and you know he was well was one of the giants and uh you know even if even if he only wrote uh the princess bride i would <laughs> i would love him and, 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 and i would i would happily do an, i would happily do like a whole podcast just about his script yeah because i think it's such a perfect script mm. um you know it's i mean i i, I think the film is is beautifully done as well but without that script it's just you know it's it's uh, it's kind of unfavorable you know it's um it is inconceivable you know yes. uh, it, it, but it's just i mean it's just it's just like line after line it's such a quotable film yeah um or that you know the cliffs of insanity you know <laughs> uh, and uh, the shrieking eels and, and uh, all that you know rodents on your size i don't think this you know and, it, and you can just go on and on and on and, and it's so it, it, it's such a sort of warm-hearted enjoyable film that sort of like takes those kind of fantasy and fairy tale tropes and just sort of just gently tweaks them um but at the same time it tells it doesn't you don't lose the story you know um and it's sort of it's one of it's it's amazing that it comes out of the time and it's not really a big hit is it no and it's just gradually grown and grown and grown and and without without that film you don't get the likes of like shrek or 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 these sort of modern day uh, like right reinventions of like fairy tales like Snow White and the Huntsman and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think you get any of those, and they're all imperial. <laughs> That's but, true. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't know about Snow White and the Huntsman. I think that's just. Um, I think that's just the comic book thing coming in, where it's like, well, we've got to make it a bit more action orientated. But I think the the one film that's <laughs> sort of a direct descendant is uh, Stardust. Yes. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a, a, a direct descendant um, from Princess Bride because if you don't have that, then you don't have uh, Stardust. And Absolutely, have, yeah. yeah. I've forgotten until you mentioned it, Clive. I'd forgotten that he did Maverick, actually, yeah. you know, obviously adapted from the TV series, but, uh, y- you know, um, Richard Donner there with that whole thing. There was obviously back in, back when that was made, was when cinema tended to be really winky with some stuff. Mm. So of course yeah. you get that horrible 
cameo bit with Danny Glover. Oh. And they even play the Lethal Weapon theme. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting, though, about reading Goldman's books? Is every time I read about a film, and I had this the other day with Absolute Power, mm-hmm. I picked up the Blu-ray just because I'd read, recently read the chapter on, like, just randomly. Sometimes I'll just pick book up, books up and read a chapter. Um on absolute power and the only reason I picked that up on Blu-ray and watched it is because I read that chapter of the book and just go. wanted to see what the final result was I mean it wasn't great but <laughs> we get, we'll get, we'll get all sorts of listeners yeah. suddenly yeah. watching uh, you know films of Goldman's just because they're listening to this yeah. wouldn't that be nice that'd be lovely <laughs> um, but yeah Maverick I, I've been dying to watch Maverick again because I've read that chapter so many times yeah, on the yeah. book in the book um there's something about the way he tells those stories. Yeah. Uh, and his writing is, is superb. Um, even the le- lesser films like Ghosts in the Darkness, you know, I mean... Yeah, you see, I like that film, actually. Yeah, I like yeah. that film. Yeah. I, well, I yeah. thought that was, yeah, decent <laughs> he knew at the time. Story. He, kn- yeah. he knew yeah. when there was a good story behind something. Yeah. I even want to see the flop ones. Yeah. Like, the ones that didn't make it. I, I, I really want to see what will happen with those? There's, there, there are some that are more difficult to get hold of. I still mm. want to see the Hot Rock, but it's kind of difficult. Yeah, it's bizarre. Sometimes it, it winds up on television at like half past three in the Sunday afternoon. You've got to kind of ah, catch it quickly. But um, yeah, it, in what I've seen of it, it's really good. Um, but yeah, I've never watched it all the way through. So. It, it's it's funny actually. Simon mentioned this on a podcast. Of, few episodes ago and it's so true we were talking about you know Mm. as you'd said earlier about the consumption model now and the fact that everything's available and Mm. you've got netflix and you've got amazon well well yeah but 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 i was thinking about when we grew up and you know a lot of the films we watched and, and 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 became inspired by or whatever it was because exactly the reason simon said a few podcasts back we only had four channels and 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 you would you you you'd want to watch that and of course as Clive mentioned with the video recorder we could record one and watch the other right which people are like what what the hell are these old kids talking about but 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 you know and and it was you it did make you I actually do think it did make you almost a little bit more broadly film literate than than maybe you would be today because well, today you can focus on yeah. just what you want there's rather another, than there's another thing that you don't get with uh today's technology is the fact that if you were if you didn't set the timer you just hit record you get what was on after it so sometimes the film you were recording you got another one afterwards mm. and sometimes the one afterwards was more interesting Sorry, the reason I'm sniggering is you, the way you started saying that just made me think of that scene in City Slickers where he's trying to explain to Bruce to uh, not Bruce, um, to Daniel Stern's character how you set. The oh, set the video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that just yeah. sprung into my head, but it was really. That's why I started laughing. Sorry, sorry. sorry, I don't have to be on the channel <laughs> exactly. to, to record it. Yeah, yes. You could be on a different channel. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's 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 clearly was it, a generation X was, was joke. It always there, an nightmare when the tape run out halfway through that really good movie. Like, yeah. There was a great article a few years back, and I'll never forget it from I think the Guardian, where they were 
they were bemoaning the lack of decent film programming for television now. And they were saying there was a time, and it is true, and this is something I carry around with me, you know, I always say to people, there was a time when to get a decent education in film, all you needed was a copy of the Radio Times and, uh, you know, the ability to stay up late and watch what was ever everyone was on BBC Two at oh, sort yeah. of half past ten at night. We talk about or, this often. Movie drum, yeah. What a great show. Or, or uh, Saturday Night the Movies from ITV. Yes. Yeah. 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 I remember especially around 89 because mm. that was the first time I saw anything about uh, the new Batman film. Mm. Yeah. Hey, does anybody Different. remember Moving Pictures on BBC Two? Yes. yes. Presented by mm. Howard Shulman. That was... That hands down yeah. was one of the great movie shows yeah. of all time for me. Yes. Mm. So there you go. You've been listening to the retro, <laughs> retro podcast. Uh, retro. I bet. So, I bet, guys. This is the one time you wish you owned a DeLorean. <laughs> yes. So, any, anything else then before we sort of close up on this? Any, any sort of final points have we given have we given them roughly the yeah. equal sort of yeah. time we have yeah, okay. I, I have a question for everyone oh mm. okay. what was the first William Goldman scripted film you saw at the cinema oh god do you know I think actually mine might have been Misery I think because okay. that was that was certainly the first Stephen King adaptation that i saw at the cinema and and that's why when we did our stephen king episode it was actually one of my picks mm. for that reason so i think yeah in terms of the cinema it's probably that i obviously saw things on tv and on video prior to i know i saw princess bride on video yeah i have to say i don't think i've seen any of these films at the cinema not not that i can call off the top of my head i think Everything I've seen is, has been from uh, TV or video. Paul? Maverick or Misery. Oh, right, there we go. It would have been so one of those. Two. Obviously, same sort of era. My, my yeah. high point for going to the cinema when I used to go twice to watch any old shit, basically, mm -hmm. I saw Ghost three times hey, in the cinema. Hey, I think Ghost is a great film. And I'll, and I'll explain <laughs> why, just to get, as, as a caveat. It was because... Uh, my local Odeon, the, the Wimbledon Odeon at the time when I when I was young, um, in the sort of late eighties and nineties, it's only one pound ninety five. So I could go and see. I saw Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade like three or four times at the cinema. Who can blame you? I got ten pounds a week pocket money, right? And that was what I would spend it on. Yeah, yeah. Going to the cinema five times to watch the same bloody film. <laughs> um, Nothing wrong yeah, with that. Nothing I think wrong with that. If I go back through my old movie tickets, it's sad I still keep my old, old oh movie my tickets. Oh my God, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've still got them all. Um, Hoarder. Yeah, oh God, it is sad, <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, I, I think it would probably be Misery or Maverick. Right. Clive, as you asked the question. I did. I have a very strong memory of going to the ABC cinema in Portsmouth and seeing a... Uh, I can't remember the, the funny thing is I can't remember the film I actually went there to see but I remember like a massive like uh, uh, Princess Bride standee mm. it's like you know one of those ones where it's like faux uh, like sort of like 3D where, it, where it's, you've got like the sort of like an artifact <laughs> with, yeah. with like the title and then they then you've got like cutouts of the people like oh, yeah, okay. like behind it you know and, and I remember seeing like 
you know, just Andre the Giant and, uh, you know, uh, and, and Manny Patekin, like, with his brandishing sword, and then you've got Kerry Owens and, and the Prince, and it's like, wow, that looks amazing. And and, and I, was, I remember really wanting to see it and then not being able to because it just went, you know, but... So that, that so, but I, I just mentioned it because it, that was my kind of first memory. But actually, uh, the first one I saw at the cinema would have been Misery. My God, did he do Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Yeah, oh, it's John Carpenter oh, there's a great, connection. There's a great chapter on that. In, okay, in I didn't which even realise that. Didn't even realise um, That's one of the ones that went wrong. And of course, Chaplin, mm. which was a great film. That's, yeah, there's, you know. <laughs> So many, isn't there? But there yeah. you go. Um, I mean, just, I, I must. I mean, I must admit. I mean, it's kind of sad that I didn't really see any of his work at the cinema. I, mean, I saw them all on video. I, mean, I remember when uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man came out because mm. it was the year I, um, you know, I, I did my GCSEs. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the year you failed your GCSEs because you were <laughs> watching. <the> <laughs> Uh, too many videos, yeah. <laughs> Less John Carpenter movies. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yes. I didn't watch that until it came out on video. But I mm. remember when it, the cinema released. Actually, I read the uh, novelization before I saw the film. Oh, wow. Wow. So, yeah. My God. All right. Well, uh, if we're, if we're, we feel that we've, uh, we've, I think we've paid tribute to them both. Yes. You know, so, um, absolutely. Well, we always want to give our, um, our guests the opportunity to promote any work or anything else that you want to say uh, here on the podcast. So if, if people want to find out more or get hold of you or whatever, where can they go? Paul? Oh, oh, Cl- wow. oh well, Clive then first. That's fine. <laughs> um, if people want to check out some of my, some of my more recent short films, they can go to uh, Vimeo and put in my name, Clive Ashenden, and they'll find someone work as a filmmaker or um, I would encourage them to go to the Apocalyptic Conservatory Studios uh, channel on YouTube to check out some of my work as an actor where you might also find one Keith Isles heavily featured. Our good friend Mike Tack. Yes, Yes. indeed. And Paul? Uh, So, uh, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at ManReadComic. and you can see our or listen to rather our podcast we do a whole bunch of podcasts on comics and comic related uh things so we have frame by frame which is our film and tv podcast uh we have orbiting comics which is our comics review podcast um they're all on itunes under orbital comics and then we have um the Full Geek, which is the podcast we do for a website called Nerd Jabber. You can find that there. That's me and Liz and Rob Deb, who's a terrific comedian and uh, um, writer and comics expert. Uh, we do those, you know, endlessly. We're doing loads of podcasts, basically. Um, and I do an interview podcast called In the Orbit Of, which is also kind of uh, just for, for orbital um, or you can follow Orbital at Orbital Comics or come and see us in the shop at Great Newport Street WC2. Wow. There we you are go. here seven days a week. I'm not <laughs> here seven days a week personally. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you're here after hours now. Yeah. There you go. And, and you also, you started recording some audio commentaries as well. Is yeah. That right? So we, this is a, a, a thing that I've wanted to get going for ages. Um, I did the, it was originally supposed to be me and Liz, but for scheduling reasons, we couldn't 
get us in the same room at the same time to sit there for three hours and do these. But um, there's a commentary for Batman Begins. There's a commentary for The Dark Knight. There will be one for The Dark Knight Rises in the next couple of weeks, I hope. So we're going to do the whole whole trilogy. Um, we've got another one coming with a guest, which I can't say what it is yet. And then there's going to be a surprise one, oh. which we're all hoping to get out before the end of the year because they're all kind of relevant to certain anniversaries that have fallen for particular films this year. Ah. So thank you for letting me plug those. No, okay, no. <laughs> all on the Orbital website. I'll have guys. a listen. I mean, one one day I do want to get around to doing a commentary myself on, on some films hey, that Keith, I like. We should find something. Come in, yes. come in and do one with us. <laughs> I, I, I would love, I would genuinely love that. <laughs> honestly. I really would. No, I love doing them. Um, and it, but you do need a second person there. So it would be great to do one with you if we can find the right right film to do. Any Bond film will do. <laughs> oh, God. Well, you I'm imagine doing all the Bond others. films. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Keith, where can people find your work? Okay, well, um, if you go on to YouTube and put in British Isles, that's E-Y-L-E-S, you can find uh, short films there that I've written, produced and directed. Uh, also, I should mention here that uh, the web series that I'm in called Rebecca Gold, um, apparently it's it's recently won an award. Um, oh, wow. So well done, Ian David Diaz and the rest of the cast and crew for that one. And it is now available on Amazon. So uh, you can you can watch that on Amazon. I'm really well. excited to watch this, actually, Clive. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 Keith, sorry. <laughs> I'm so excited. What are you telling him for? <laughs> oh, because I was talking about Clive's movie. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, I'm but, really uh, excited to see it, man. Good. Um, yeah. I, I'm too close to it to have a, a cu- an opinion. Anyway. And uh, Simon. And as always, you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. Uh, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube and all good podcast providers. You can follow us on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And please leave us a rating and review. It all helps. Oh, so. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you to our, uh, our guests, Clive Ashenden. Thank you, Clive. Always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks chat. for having me, uh, Excelsior. Yes, and th- thank you, Paul, for uh, uh, not only coming on and, and and chatting with us, but allowing us to uh, record it here. It's uh, been brilliant. My pleasure, it's, and the shop's pleasure. Thank it's more you fun, so much. actually. And uh, as as Clive already pre- preempted, our uh, our podcast today was brought to you by the words Excelsior and Inconceivable. Inconceivable. <laughs>
Come, my love, I'll tell you a tale of a boy and girl and their love story, and how he loved her oh so much, and all the charms she did possess. This did happen once upon a time when things were not so complex, and how he worshipped the ground she walked, and when he looked in her eyes, he became obsessed. My love is like a storybook story. But it's as real as the feelings I feel. My love is like a storybook story. But it's as real as the feelings I feel. It's as real as the feelings I feel. Love was stronger than the power so dark a prince could have within his keeping. His spells to weave and steal a heart within her breast, but only sleeping. My love is like a storybook story, but it's as real as the feelings I feel. My love is like a storybook story, but it's as real as the feelings I feel. It's as real as the feelings I feel. Thank you.